Greetings from the north, citizens of Earth. Welcome. Today we're revisiting our ancient history series with a detailed scientific account for the fall of the antediluvian civilization. You'll learn what the globe was like during the Ice Age, the course and process of its transformation, and its consequences still resonating today. Now, who better to account for the catastrophism angle than the very brilliant first-time guest, Randall Carlson. He is a master builder, an architectural designer, geometrician, geomythologist and geological explorer, hailing from rural Minnesota, currently located in the Deep South. He has four decades of study, research and exploration into the interface between ancient mysteries and modern science. As you'll hear today, he developed a curiosity for the natural world early in life. He attended Robinsdale Cooper Senior High School in Minnesota, and later, while attending Georgia's DeKalb College, he was awarded Outstanding Geology Student of the Year in '93. Then he took his associate degree before attending Sita Masonry School. As an independent scholar and researcher, Randall blends multiple scientific disciplines together with a key knowledge of ancient mythology and symbolism to create a unique perspective on the events shaping our prehistorical timelines. He's traveled extensively both nationally and internationally, investigating the impacts that astronomical events have had on human culture. He's organized several dozen field expeditions documenting evidence for catastrophic earth change and during the past two and a half decades logged over 40,000 road miles of travel across North America to hundreds of sites studying the effects of the Ice Age and its rapid termination 11 to 14,000 years ago, along with other phenomena associated with extreme events such as impact craters, volcanic eruptions and late Pleistocene megafaunal death assemblages. His focus has been directed primarily at the wealth of evidence for catastrophic megafloods. His work incorporates ancient mythology, archaeo, astronomy, earth science, paleontology, symbolism, sacred geometry and architecture, geomancy and other arcane and scientific traditions. For over 25 years he's presented classes, lectures and multimedia programs, synthesizing it for students. One such outlet is the Cosmographic Research Institute, of which he's the founder. Randall Carlson is not just a stonemason, but also a freemason for over 30 years and is past master of one of the oldest and largest Masonic lodges in Georgia. He's received academic recognition for outstanding work as a student of geology, and he's been recognized by the National Science Teachers Association for his commitment to science education for young people. He's been a guest at innumerable podcasts, radio shows, and magazines, of which just some 
are The Higher Side Chats, Den of Lore, The Gramerica Show, Tinfoil Hat with Sam Tripoli, Occult of Personality, and of course, The Joe Rogan Experience, where he's a five-time guest, a couple of times together with his buddy, Graham Hancock. He has several specials over at Gaia TV and the acclaimed 1997 TBS CNN documentary Fire from the Sky was based upon his research into earth change and catastrophic events. Privately, he is a professional designer, builder and co-owner of Archetype Design Build, which he runs together with his brother Rohan. They are third-generation home builders with a combined 80-plus years experience. As young men worked alongside their father and grandfather, learning the craft from two master builders who with their own hands built over 150 homes. The company bring the complete package from engineering and design to building codes and project management, combining art, history, science and common sense to their building projects. Having checked out their incredibly beautiful work online, I almost wish I lived in their state and had a home to build or renovate so I could enjoy dwelling in such masterpieces as the Carlsons create. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Randall. Well, thanks for having me, Al. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's such a pleasure to to have you here. And um, I have to start, people have heard, of course, already the baselines of your stuff. So I, and we agreed to do the ancient stuff today, uh, the, the esoteric stuff will have to wait. Although, like you made a point of before we started, it's kind of conflating <laughs> in many areas. Well, think about this, Al, geology and geometry. Yeah. They're both based on the study of the earth. Good point. So I've had a couple of geologists on, like one of them, you know, Robert Schock. Yep. Yeah, we've had uh, Cremo on too for, for this topic and a few others. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm uh, familiar with him. I read the abbreviated version of his book years ago. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I've had some geometrists on, uh, like Timothy Hogan, you know him. Oh yeah, I suppose I you're. Think that's how we connected, right? Through Timothy. That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. He's connected me with so many. Of yes. So I'm game to discuss both. I've had uh, shows about ancient. I've had shows about spirituality. I'm, and I'm open to coming back. Yeah, because there's certainly going to be more than we can talk about in 90 minutes. But how about this? If we dive into the whole flood thing and the antediluvian story, mm-hmm. because see, I, I guess you could establish a premise that a lot of these teachings come from an unknown source whose roots are actually in prehistory. And then what raises the question of, well, why is this source so difficult to discern? I mean, why isn't it obvious? We can go, oh, well, right here, history. We trace all of this, you know, okay, the the concept for the Great Pyramid. Well, maybe it came from the Egyptians, but maybe it didn't. Right. Now, you said you had Robert Schock on, so I presume you talked about the age of the Sphinx, right? Yes. What about Somewhat. that? And he, he'll, yeah. And so, again, the idea is that there was more going on in prehistory than conventional academia has really recognized up to this point. My starting position on all this is that things have happened mm. that, that, again, like what we're looking at right here, but on a global scale. 
see. Now, that to me, there's a geological explanation as to why we don't really see the overt evidence of some lost civilization. And the critics will usually attack, where's the pottery? Where, where is the, mm. the manuscripts, the scrolls? Where's the jewelry? Where's the ritual artifacts? Where, you know, all of that, right? Yeah. What they don't understand is they don't understand this process right here behind me. Because if they did, they would begin to understand really why we shouldn't necessarily expect to find overt evidence from a civilization that's perhaps 12 or 15 or 20,000 years old. Right. So I like to establish that as a, a working premise is that catastrophes in the history of this planet are very real. Catastrophes in the history of human civilization are very real. And they are part of our, our core traditions and principles that have come down to us because virtually all cultures have some, some version of ancient catastrophes, whether it's flood or fire, some apocalyptic view and so what I try to do is show, okay, like when we talk about specifically now tradition that we've inherited, modern science, and they're doing this. Yeah. Modern science is confirming that there is a core, a scientific basis to these ancient traditions. It is, but it's doing it kicking and screaming. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, you know this very well. Sure. Hey, before we, you're already on a roll here, but before we really begin, mm -hmm. uh, I just wonder, do you know, when we talk about Shock, do you know his now deceased friend who was brilliant mind in Esoterica? What was his name? John Anthony West. Exactly. Did you know him? Yes, I knew John, yes. Okay, good for you. I did, <laughs> I did. Yeah, yeah. I have pictures of he and I together over oh, the last two years of his life and then probably 30 years ago. Wow. Let's see, 1990, 96, 97, we, I was a presenter at a conference that he was at, and I was the penultimate and he was the ultimate. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so uh, that's where we actually met. Yeah, he was, yeah, John was a, a good fella and uh uh, uh, yeah, an awesome researcher. And such a sharp tongue, too. I, I loved it. I mean, uh, he could best Graham Hancock in having a sharp tongue. You know what I mean? Who, John or, yes. or Robert? No, Robert. No, 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 Robert is, is very gentle. Mm. I'll talk about John. Yeah, John wasn't afraid to go in with, you know, fist flying. And I, that's what I liked about him. Yeah. The guys I podcast with and stuff, they're always trying to tone me down. Yeah, that's right. We have to plug your podcast too. I'm a bit confused. It looks as if you're into two podcasts, but you can oh. explain that later. Cool. But let me start with this then. Um, how did you get into the antediluvian stuff to begin with? Well, I think it's primarily because I grew up in rural Minnesota in a landscape that was shaped and sculpted by the glaciers that uh, covered more than half of North America uh, back between, say, 13,000 and maybe 25,000 years ago. And uh, Same as here in Norway, where I'm at. Yeah, I, yes. So you had the Fenoscandian ice sheet, as it's called, at least in the American literature. Mm -hmm. And I was at the uh, edge or margin of the Laurentide ice sheet. Because uh, uh, in North America, there were two distinct ice sheets that have 
that formed but eventually grew together. One in the western part of the continent called the Cordilleran, and then one centered over Hudson's Bay, basically, mm-hmm. that was called the Laurentide. And at the late glacial maximum, which was 15 to 18,000 years ago, perhaps, mm-hmm. they coalesced, they grew together, and it became one massive uh, sheet of ice that reached from the Atlantic to the Pacific and from the northern United States up to the Arctic Circle. And where I lived was right at the southern margin in Minnesota. So the the margin of the ice sheet wasn't perfectly stable. It it fluctuated quite a bit. So it would advance, then it would retreat, and it would advance. Then when the ice finally melted away, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but Minnesota is referred to as the land of 10,000 lakes. Yeah, I've actually heard that. Okay. And of course, that's actually grossly understated. There's probably close to 15,000 lakes. <laughs> really? Wow. Wisconsin next door also has a lot of lakes between the two of them. Kind of like Finland up here. I would believe that, yes, because there's a lot of parallels uh, between Scandinavia and, and the northern Midwestern United States. Mm. So, You mean apart from that we sent a bunch of people over to live there? <laughs> yeah, apart from that. And, and I'm descended from some of those, at least on my right. dad's side. Uh, not to get off the path, I'll come right back to it, but when I grew up in Minnesota, you know, there was a rivalry between the Swedes and the Norwegians. Right. And um, they had all kinds of names for each other, and, and um, <laughs> as I recall, some of them were actually quite humorous. But my brother, my younger half-brother on my, my dad's side, who was, uh, you know, half-Swedish, he uh, he married, got married, God, it had been 35 years ago. Anyway, um, and he married a gal from Western Minnesota, a, a farm girl, and her family was Norwegian. Right. When her grandparents heard that she was marrying a Carlson, C A R L S O N, they threatened to boycott the wedding because ah. they were <laughs> because uh, oh my god he was he was marrying a Norwegian. Right, right. Actually, Carlson with a C would be Swedish. With a K would yes. be Norwegian. Right. Right, and we are Carlson with a sweet, mm. a sweet, a C, a C, and and we have the same uh, kind of um, glimmer in the eye and mitty even today. Yes, uh, we we like to tease. We don't have it with the Danish. We're good friends, and the Icelanders. We're good friends, and the Swedes are good friends with the Danish uh, and the Finnish. Uh-huh. They have the Finns. So I don't know what it is, but it's always been like that. Swedes and Norwegians being at each other's <laughs> throats. So I never understood the basis of it myself. I mean, there's never been a war between the Swedes and Norwegians, have there? <laughs> oh well, it's not a war, but they. Uh, you know, the Black Plague broke on back. Uh-huh. Then the Danes took over. Oh. And then the Swedes bought us. They purchased us from the Danes. Oh, okay. And then we got a freedom, like, in, in the 18th, hundred uh, that century. So it's it, it goes back to that, I think. Uh, because if you go back to the Viking times, the it wasn't really Norwegian, Swedes and Danes that was the thing. It was more where did the mountains go to divide us. Mm-hmm. And speaking of mountains, we still have remnants of those ice caps here. Uh, and some of our best water uh, that is, I mean, we drink water here from the tap because it's clean. But mm-hmm. we manufacture also commercial water and that's from these 
these uh, ice uh, glaciers. And I suppose it's because if water has been under the ice, it's the cleanest water you can get. Yes, something like yes. that. And and you know, in Minnesota, uh, you know, we used to go camping a lot in northern Minnesota. Now I grew up outside of Minneapolis, but yes, those some of those lakes up there are just strikingly clear. Um, you know, you can be in a 15 or 20 foot deep lake and you can see the bottom just as clear as if almost you're looking through glass. And um, right. usually the, the bottoms of these lakes are mantled with, with cobbles and boulders, um, which again, a legacy of the, the ice that was there. So for me, I, you know, it, <clears throat> I think I, I blame a lot of it on a rural upbringing um, where you could go out <laughs> at night and you could actually see the stars and having this really interesting landscape. Um, and even from, you know, childhood, I remember being seven years old and standing on a hill across the road from my house. And it was looking out, you know, our, our property was right on one of those meltwater puddles that got left over. It was called Schmidt Lake um, because we bought our land from Carl Schmidt and there was two Schmidt brothers um, and they owned farms, one to the north, one to the south of us. And so we lived on Schmidt Lake on Schmidt's Crossroad, and uh, it was the two Schmidt brothers, and they had settled mm -hmm. on that lake. So anyhow, living there on that, uh, on that lake, uh, you know, I just, I just got, um, what can I say? I, I kind of got infected with the, the love of outdoors and nature. Um, so uh, we had several books around the house, and I remember seeing one of the books and it was a picture i think if i recall it was you know it was an illustration of what it would have been like during the ice age and i couldn't have been more than seven or eight years old uh, mm. and i remember my father telling me oh well there was a whole you know this whole place was covered in ice and yeah it was just it made an impression on me because here i am you know more than six decades later and i still remember that um yeah but yeah, so growing up, and then there were places we'd go sometimes as kids. There was a, a place up on the St. Croix River, which forms uh, part, part of the border between Minnesota and Wisconsin. And the St. Croix River was a conduit for one of the great meltwater discharges off the uh, Laurentide Ice Sheet. And it came down, and there was a constriction at this place that is now called uh, interstate park because it's a, a park that's jointly managed by both Minnesota and Wisconsin. And there are outcrops of basalt flanking the, uh, the sides of the river. And right at this one particular place, now this is maybe, oh, 75 miles northwest, northeast of, of the Twin Cities. And what it was, was there was uh, this, the, the basalt bedrock there was very hard. So when these meltwater streams came from the north, and in fact, this particular um, meltwater stream was discharging off the so-called superior lobe of the ice sheet, which is named after Lake Superior, one of the Great Lakes, the five Great Lakes, yeah, which yeah. of course are a legacy mm -hmm. of the of the of the uh, Great Ice Sheets. But so when this water came down, what it did was it, if you know what a Venturi flume is, it was almost operating like that. It, it was focused into this narrow constriction between this uh, hard uh, basalt bedrock outcrop. And what happens when water um, is flowing in a channel, 
as long as the source of the water remains constant, the flow through the channel remain will remain constant, regardless of the shape or the geometry of the channel itself. So what that means is that if the channel gets narrower, on a per second basis, there will be the same volume of water passing a given point uh, as would be occurring in the same channel, but where the channel is widening out, for example. It's sort of a conservation of energy principle, except applied to water. Mm -hmm. So what happens is as the water comes into a constriction, it has to speed up. And you, anybody can observe this. You go in any creek or river and watch if the if the river channel narrows. You'll see, for example, either the gradient changes or the 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 width of the channel changes. And you may have smooth water for one reach of the river, and then suddenly there's white water. And the white water is because you're increasing the velocity and the turbulence of the water. So, anyways, what I'm getting at is this water comes through this constriction. It accelerates. It becomes uh, it becomes more turbulent, and then, as a result of that turbulence, it starts forming really powerful vortices, almost mm. in effect like underwater tornadoes. Right. These vortices spinning around drilled into the bedrock outcrops and created these huge potholes. Some of them are ten to twenty feet across in diameter and up to eighty feet deep. These were the consequence of these extraordinarily powerful um, torrents of water gushing through this constriction in the, in the uh, valley there. We used to go there regularly as kids, and seeing those potholes, I remember, just uh, really intrigued me. And when I got older, about 18, I remember being up there with uh, my younger brothers and some friends and stuff, and that was when it kind of you know, up to that point, as a as a as a youth, you know, they were just cool features, and I didn't really think that much about how they got there. Mm. Once I got older, and and you know, we'd go there and we'd hike around and stuff, and I would see these potholes, and I'd start thinking about, okay, so now how did this get here? Mm. And at that point, you know, many years ago, I really didn't have a clue. I didn't understand colking, which is the phenomena of of uh, turbulent waters forming vortexes, powerful vortexes, which I more sort of understand the basic concept now. Um, mm. And it is literally like an underwater tornado. Um, it, it, it can create extraordinarily low pressures, which can actually, it, it, it not only drills, it, it plucks at the same time. Mm. Uh, so it's, it's, and so that was a, a key thing. Then Another uh, incident was summer of 1969. There was, and I've told this story, but it, and I'm going to just give the very abbreviated version of it. Mm -hmm. There's a uh, uh, an airport southwest of Minnesota, Minneapolis, and it's on a flat river bluff overlooking the Minnesota River, which is a tributary to the Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> these bluffs are about 200 feet above the valley floor of the Minnesota River. And at this particular, and so anyways, on the weekends, there was a piece of flat land adjacent to this airport. I don't remember if it was part of the airport or not, but it was, it was a flat land and they would set up sta a stage there and they would have outdoor concerts in the summer on the weekends. So what I remember was, is I was there for, for a concert, there was a break in the concert or, or I don't really remember what was going on. I have no idea who was even there, but 
I wandered away from the stage and the crowd and I wa uh, walked over to the edge of this bluff. Like I said, that's 200 feet above the valley floor, looking down to the Minnesota River, three miles away, three miles to the south, there was another bank that matched the one that I was on. And what I remember was, as I lo was looking down, and right there at that position, the uh, the Minnesota River had meandered over, uh, so it was to the north. So it was basically hugging or very close to the base of the 200-foot embankment that I was standing on top of. And I'm looking down at that, and I saw the way that the modern Minnesota River had entrenched into um, into the earth and had created almost like a duplicate in miniature of what I was seeing, you see, and on a much larger scale. Mm. And, I, and it made an impression on me because it was my first concept of the idea, which has come to be very important to my thinking and understanding, which um, I call scale, or I don't call it, it has been called scale invariance. Also, fractal self-similarity is another term that has been used. And I don't know if you, you probably understand the basic idea of a fractal is that regardless of the scale, the pattern is going to remain consistent. So, yeah. and, and you have this self-similarity phenomena in geology and how it manifests is that you might be looking at an outcrop and let's say you photograph an outcrop uh, of, of exposed rock or something. And then if you look at any uh, geological report, article, paper, textbook, you'll typically see that photographs of geological formations or features will always have something in there for scale. Mm. You know, if it's a smaller scale, typically in the old days, particularly the, the uh, geologists would put the rock pick in the picture. Right, right. It could, could be anything. It could be a hat. Yeah. Somewhat larger scale, uh, they'll have a person standing there. Because without that, you might be looking at it and you go, am I looking at something here that's six inches high or 600 feet? Uh, I know this phenomenon from, um, I don't know what they call it. Maybe it should be called uh, solar system archaeology or whatever. You know, the stuff Richard Hoagland is into. Yeah. When you see these pictures from other planets, sometimes you have no idea. Is this like, am I studying just grains of sand here or am, am yeah. I looking at huge rocks, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's the problem with outer outer space. But on Earth, it's simpler, of course. Yeah, yeah, but but yeah, but it still can get pretty complex. And but what what that means is, Al, is that you can look at smaller scale phenomena, and you can extrapolate lessons and insights from that that then apply to the larger scale phenomena. Right. And right. Uh, so. I guess to, in a nutshell, for me, it was, I mean, I could go on with more details and different stories, but that's the essence of the ideas growing up in this particular environment. But then I also had um, an early, my, my, I remember uh, for my ninth birthday, I was given a, um, a, one of my presents was a subscription to a book club called the All About Book Club, which was a bunch of, they each month they would send you a, a book and it would be on some scientific topic and it was oriented towards young people. Right. So, and I, and I had just, you know, by the time I was nine, I had become a, a, a pretty uh, competent reader. And so I got this book club. So for a year or two, every month I was getting a new book and, you know, one of the books would be all, you know, all about electricity. Um, 
They're all about dinosaurs. Hmm. All about rocks and minerals. Uh, all about the planets. Something like that. So yeah. getting those books every month and reading these things, I, I just developed this love of of science and learning and you know how the natural world worked but but back then uh, all those books guaranteed were uniformitarian propaganda <laughs> pretty much well yeah so so what you need to do next now is to connect these observations you made the this love of these nature phenomenons and now explain to us how they are relevant to the antediluvian fall well would you just used a, a great term there antediluvian before the flood Mm. Right. Mm. So I will segue into one more element because it, it, it bears directly on, okay. on, on your, uh, on your uh, question here, which is that at nine also we moved from Minnesota. My parents separated and my mother took me and my brothers home to Louisiana, which is a very different <laughs> environment. In, very different indeed. Yeah. Then don't know why I've been in so many ways in many ways, but yeah. here's what I remember. They had a brand, I was I went into fourth grade, and it was the first. The school had just been built. This was the first year I was in the first class of that that school, and they really went all out on the library, and I really liked. And of course, I just you know learned how to read. And at that point, I just you know in my life I started on a lifelong habit of voracious reading. Mm. Um, but what I discovered was they had a lot of books in that library about mythology. Both mm. Greek, prim primarily Greek mythology and Norse mythology. Mm. So I read every book that they had about mythology and got really immersed and interested in that particular subject, which uh, pretty much stayed with me right into my adult years. So on the one hand, I'm going out, spending a lot of time camping, hiking, spending time in the outdoors. And then on the other hand, I've got this growing knowledge of mythology, you know, mm -hmm. so I discovered a lot of the early fringe um, researchers like Emmanuel Velikovsky, uh, if you've heard mm. of him, he was one of the more well-known ones in the 50s who right. wrote about ancient civilizations and catastrophism and that sort of thing. And from his approach, it spinned off a whole new science called the Electrical Universe. Right, that's right. I had the chap uh, Thornhill on for that. Okay. So we know about it. And there were some others too uh, back in the day, of course. Yeah. I have not been convinced by the electrical universe ideas yet, mm. but that's another discussion. Yep. Although I think that there is certainly validity there. I'm some of the things, uh, I, yeah, we don't need to get into that too much um, at this point. But yeah, so there was Velikovsky's work, the book that made the biggest impression on me was Earth and Upheaval, because mm. this was a um, a series of oh, vignettes about catastrophism and how it manifested in terms of geology or paleontology or archaeology. And it was a compilation of basically what was out there in the literature and in the research, the scientific research in the 1950s. Mm. relative to a catastrophic interpretation of, of history. And I think that there's two parts to Velikovsky's work. His, his compilation of, uh, of catastrophism and then his attempts to explain these catastrophes. Now, most of the critics 
um, of Velikovsky have, have honed in on his attempts to come up with some type of an explanation for the, the, the astronomical part, the astronomical part. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, uh, but I, his other work, his com his compiling work, I has, has stood the test of time. And the other idea, and this is one that Graham Hancock has, has kind of drawn upon, which is mankind in amnesia. And right. th- and we are getting into his wheelhouse there, uh, because sure. that he was a trained uh, psychologist, and so he took the idea of the myths because that's really what oh you mean you mean Velikovsky now, not uh, Hancock. Yeah, Velikovsky. Yeah. So so mm. Velikovsky, he was the one who really began to try to link together the mythology with the actual g- modern geology and paleontology. Mm. Now. Again, he was he was criticized a lot for that, but I think that part of his work has withstood the test of time because we now there was nothing called geomythology in his day, and now there is a a new scientific discipline that's you know beginning. You, you mean it's a new discipline uh, officially in in universities, or do you mean just like a, a, as an interest field? As an interest field, but right, it, it right. could be. I mean, some of the. Uh, proponents of this idea that i mean it's certainly gaining credibility this idea right, right. that that our mythology contains actual verifiable information and data that can be used to understand these ancient uh events yeah so what we're so to come back to the the, the idea of the antediluvian you know we talk about an antediluvian civilization we're basically i think if we want to now place it in a a a scientific framework we're talking about going back into the into the ice age and and beyond and uh, relative to our modern times and the thing that has to be understood now and which is which is gaining momentum but and becoming more and more accepted even by the more orthodox thinkers is that the the transition the planetary transition from a full-blown glacial age into an interglacial age, such as we are now in, happened much, much faster than Mm. anyone actually was imagining even a few generations ago. And certainly pre-radiocarbon dating, uh, which came along in the 50s, but there was not enough of a database until approximately the 70s, where the old assumptions about uh, how long it takes to transition from one state to the other got compressed by about, you know, uh, literally tenfold by an order of magnitude. In other words, the older models, you got 50 to 100,000 years to get the planet from a full-blown glacial to an interglacial age. Mm-hmm. Well, now radiocarbon dating comes along, and it's less than 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. So over a period of 10,000 years, we go from a point where we have roughly six to seven million cubic miles of additional glacial ice. Right now, there's 10% roughly of the planet. When you talk about Antarctica and Greenland primarily, and then residual uh, mountain glaciers. Wow, is that uh, th- that much? Greenland and Antarctica makes up 10%? Right now, about 10% of the Earth's That's surface. a lot. That is a lot. And there's a, and there's a lot of ice, of course, in the North Pole, too. But that's on water. That's on water. So, so that's yeah. right. So, so the ice in the Arctic is is basically, yeah, like you said, it's a marine ice. It's it's on the ocean. And then when you get to the and and there's an interesting asymmetry between the North and South Pole is that 
of course, you know, the North Pole is an ocean surrounded by land, basically, and yeah. the South Pole is a, is a <laughs> continent surrounded by ocean. That's a good point. So there's some, some interesting, you know, contrast going on in, in, in yeah. how these two systems work. Um, yeah. But in any case, back at the late glacial maximum, there was as much as 30% of the Earth's surface covered by ice. And when that melted, and if it melted relatively fast, I mean, even if it melted over hundreds of years, thousands of years, there would be like suddenly something would uh, be cut off very fast and it would be a huge avalanche. Yes. But if it melted very fast, I imagine that the flood wouldn't just be the classical romantical idea of a huge tidal wave coming in from the coast and of course back then as now actually most cities were coastal cities yes but there was oh, there will be like a, a scissor effect because there will be enormous water coming from the mountains i imagine i don't know if this is scientifically verified but doesn't that stand to reason yes and that's the thing al is that um the the time period over which these events happened got dramatically and drastically constricted from the earlier, you know, concepts from, say, the first two-thirds or three-quarters of the 20th century. Now, mm. the full deglaciation process did take about 10,000 years. However, within that frame, maybe 8,000 years, mm. right, mm. from the very first signs that the ice sheets began to shrink to the point where they're basically gone or about down to the, uh, uh, the, the quantity of ice that there exists today. Mm. So that process began around 15,000 years ago and was pretty much over by 8,000 years ago. And one of the things that happened, of course, is because you were transferring such a tremendous volume of ice, melting it, that ice was ultimately returned to the ocean basins. Now, when the ice sheets are forming, that's water that's being evaporated out of the ocean and then precipitated out in the form of snowfall, but it doesn't melt in the spring and flow back into the into the overground water or the, the underground water and ultimately return to the ocean. So as the ice grows, ocean level drops. And by the time the ice had reached its maximum extent, ocean levels worldwide had dropped by roughly 400 feet. In, and there are actually times it looks like it may have been 450 or 500 feet lower than now. Mm. But during the late phases of last ice age, it was about 400 feet. And so, but within that, Al, that period where the first evidence of melting and correlated sea level rise is occurring, which I think we could actually place now pretty close to about 14,600 years ago. Wow. To the point at which sea levels more or less stabilized at their at their current level was about between 8,000 and 8,500 years ago, somewhere in there. Hmm. Now, within... This is... Yeah. Hang on. We have to interject yeah. here, and then we'll continue. Remember your train of thought. Sure. Because it's interesting, 4,600 to 8,500, because the classical idea which has been confirmed by so many different sources, but uh, probably the most famous is Plato. Mm -hmm. That says that the worst part of the catastrophe was about, about 12,000 years ago, right? 10,000 BC, 10,500, I think they say something around there. Yeah. 
how does that fit to what you're telling us now? Oh, I mean, if it, it does at all. Oh, it it totally fits, almost. Okay. In in a remar in remarkable ways. Um. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I was about to say that the that the melting process was not uniform over that roughly eight thousand years, and in fact, okay. it appears to have been uh, dis uh, uh, discrete pulses of of rapidly accelerated melting juxtaposed upon a slower process. So there is a uh, marine geologist identified something, oh gosh, maybe even going back to the late eighties into the nineties that the, that the rate of sea level rise was not uniform. There were periods of accelerated rise that were called meltwater pulses. <clears throat> the first meltwater pulse, which is now called meltwater pulse one a occurred at, the dating puts it right at 14,000 or right after 14,600 years ago. It appears that there was another meltwater pulse around 12,900 years ago, which is an interesting date because this is the date that coincides with the, the major intensity of the mass extinction event that brought down the the half the megafauna species of the planet and is also the um the date that's uh where the impact proxies are showing up the the fingerprints of some type of a cosmic impact but would you say that the melt the the changing the ice age starting to change in itself is a result of natural cycles but that in addition to, uh, something from the skies hit the earth like what do you say in english you add pain to injury so to speak yeah or, or would you or would you say that the whole just the fact that we went out of the ice age in itself is due to some external catastrophe i think it's coming down to an external catastrophe. Now, all of it. Okay, I, see. I will say mm -hmm. this: there are there are two types of mechanisms at work here. Mm -hmm. The much more protracted processes, the gradualist processes, are very real. They they can uh, affect an extraordinary amount of change when accumulating over time. But juxtaposed on top of that are these outsized, massively accelerated events. Right. 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 We're seeing both at work in the, the transition from glacial to interglacial age. Right. We see initially around 15,000 years ago, the first real shrinkage back of the ice sheet, um, which, which is kind of what we would expect based upon modern observations of ice sheet or, or glacier recession that we've been looking at for 150 years now. Um, but what we had was it appeared that the, Ice began receding around 15,000 years ago due to perhaps the warming that would occur as a result of the changing geometry between the earth and the sun, mm. what are called the Milankovitch processes, because sometimes the earth is a little closer to the sun. Sometimes it's farther away. Sometimes the ellipticity of the orbit is more uh, eccentric and sometimes it's less sometimes the obliquity of the earth's axis is greater sometimes less each of these factors can influence the amount of solar energy reaching the surface of the earth i mean absolutely i mean your friend and colleague with who we discussed um uh, shock dr shock mm -hmm. he he favors only the sun as a causality here 
Let me ask you, when did you interview him? Oh, it's uh, a few years ago. Has he moved his position? He may have become more open to the impact hypothesis. Okay, um, interesting. Have, I mean, I, it may not be either or here, right? I, absolutely. I don't know. And, and we can get, we, we should circle back to that question yep. as well, mm. because I don't think it's either or. Mm. And I actually think that the, that they're connected. So if you make a note and let's, yep. let's come back to that. Mm -hmm. So, so the idea is, and oh, and then we'll conclude. Then there was a third apparent meltwater pulse. It's called Meltwater Pulse 1B. And here, here's what uh, I find really interesting about that. That Meltwater Pulse is now taken as the datum that divides the Pleistocene Epoch from the Holocene Epoch. The Pleistocene was the basically two and a half million years of oscillating global climate between glacial and interglacial ages. Presumably that all ended, the date now given for the, on, the, the beginning of the Holocene is 11,600 years ago. It correlates with Meltwater Pulse 1B. And interestingly, if you mentioned Plato earlier, you know, in Plato's account of Atlantis, he, bas he gives the, the timing of the whole uh, event that caused the subsidence of Atlantis. And his date was 9,000 years prior see solon the, the story is solon the the egypt the greek poet lawgiver statesman all of this he went into a 10-year exile which is historically validated he he goes to egypt now supposedly while he's in egypt he has this opportunity to question a lot of these really elderly egyptian priests mm -hmm. and they're the ones who tell him the story of atlantis and its destruction and so on mm -hmm. now solon's trip to Egypt took place roughly 600 BC. The narrative that the Egyptians tell Solon, and this is this number is repeated multiple times throughout Plato's two dialogues, is 9,000 years ago. Mm. 9,000 years ago, there was a big war between the proto-Athenians who led the armies from inside the Mediterranean to fight off the uh, you know, the invaders and the imperialists who came into the Mediterranean from the Western Atlantic Ocean. They had this big war. And then after this war, when the Proto-Athenians drove off the Atlanteans, there was a great catastrophe. And it not only affected Greece, because Plato mentions in there that there was a tremendous rainfall event and there was huge amounts of erosion and completely changed the landscape of Greek, the Greek peninsula. And at the same time, there was a great earthquake and the island of Atlantis sank beneath the ocean, right? Mm. Well, that date, just do the math, 11,600 years ago. Mm. So mm. his date coincides precisely with the date of Meltwater Pulse 1B. Now, I mean, yeah, Meltwater Pulse 1B. So what's interesting is that modern science has confirmed that there was a major inrush of meltwater uh, from the continents into the ocean basins, which would have had a commensurate rapid rise in sea level. And precisely at that time is when Plato's narrative places the sinking of Atlantis. And, and I've done extensive discussions about 
Plato's dialogues and 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 dissecting his details uh, from a from the and looking at them through a geological and geographical lens. But what's interesting is that there is tremendous amount of evidence that has accumulated over the last fifty or sixty years suggesting that that rapid rise in sea level did in fact trigger massive earthquakes along the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And there's evidence that there was some pretty extreme subsidence of the ocean bottom as a result of what is called isostatic compensation. Because when you released all the ice from the continents, the land began to rise. And as you place roughly... uh, I've worked it out. The amount of ice that melted that was transferred into the Atlantic Ocean was about 24 quadrillion metric tons. Jeez. So when you dump that much water in, there's <laughs> going to be a geophysical response. It is. It is. There, yeah, let me, let, let me interject. Yes. So um, there is this book. It's called When the Earth Nearly Died subtitled compelling evidence of a world cataclysm 11,500 years ago and what the the authors Allen and Delaire do uh, is that they show from uh, archaeology, botanics, astronomy, geology, I mean all these different evidences that line up and this cataclysm they point to, they say it nearly destroyed (laughs) earth but also Mars at the same time. So, uh, and this is just one of many such books, of course. I, I just mentioned this specifically because it supports the dating and mm-hmm. it also makes the point that you made that it's multidisciplined. Mm-hmm. It's not just one type. It's not just mythology. It's not just geology. Right. It's all over the board, which it has to be if it's real. Yeah. And I, and I have read that book. It was okay. decades ago. But so I've, Yeah, it's an old book. Um, I'm familiar with it, and and yeah, I mean, they were in a small group of catastrophists that I would kind of think post Velikovsky, but there was there was been half a dozen of them that have written in that period. I'd say between Velikovsky and the 1980s, because what we see in in uh, at least in geology is a much more receptive attitude towards the idea of catastrophes in earth history and and that came about because of the discovery of the uh iridium layer at the cretaceous tertiary boundary of 65 million years ago and the realization that that meant that likely there was some type of a great uh impact um hypervelocity impact into into the onto the earth at the time the dinosaurs died right where we've kind of come full circle now, Al, is it's become accepted by the mainstream now that Earth history is punctuated by a series of great catastrophes, probably triggered in most cases by something exogenic, meaning something from outside, right? Yeah. Where we're coming around to now, though, is the realization that almost analogous to Earth history, human history has been punctuated by these types of cosmic events. And that just as there have been major species extinction events, there have been extinction events that basically brought down civilizations. And that this has happened multiple times. And so here's another idea now where we have a confluence between what the mythical legacy has, has told us about in terms of apocalyptic scenarios and rise and fall um, you know, that, that was one of the ideas, I think, that it was um, 
oh, really, some of the uh, some of the uh, more free thinking scientists who maybe weren't publicly about it, but like Frederick Soddy, for example, one of the scientists that worked on America's atomic program, brilliant man. He he mm-hmm. back in the maybe the fifties or even the sixties made several comments about that. Well, perhaps we're not the first civilization. Uh, maybe in fact, there's been a whole succession of civilizations that preceded our own that have been so completely wiped out in catastrophes that we don't really see obvious and overt evidence for their existence. I think that idea is being borne out. Hmm. And I think we'll understand now that, yeah, human history on planet earth is far more complex and far deeper than the older models would lead us to believe Indeed. Uh, that there's a much richer story there that may go back tens of thousands, if not even hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's an interesting point, actually, because although the catastrophism uh, field is growing, not just outside of academia, it of course all paradigm shifts pushes themselves in, even into the, you know, behind enemy lines. <laughs> into the yeah, but. If we zoom in on the catastrophist camps, there is, of course, we have all these folks, Hancock, all these folks that you know and you're a part of, who points to this period you're talking about now, mm-hmm. 8,000 to 15,000, maybe with a crescendo around 11,500. But there are also other people, like we talked about Cremo before we started here. Yeah. I, I could mention two others that I've interviewed too in the same camp, like Philip Lindsay and Joseph Farrell. And also my colleague of Rune Soup, Gordon White, all of these people favor, yeah, they talk about ancient civilization, advanced civilization, but they think the advancement was far back in time, uh-huh. like huge area back in time. Whereas they tend to think that before the fall of the last ice age of course there were civilizations but they may not have been let's say let's put it like this they may not have uh, been flying around in anti-gravity sources to put it like that right what's your view on on this specific little sub point good question al and and my view is that i'm i'm sort of sitting on the fence waiting for more specific evidence mm. to show up certainly uh, I think uh, it's uh, imperative that we begin to rethink our history and that we open our thinking to al- alternative scenarios and that that we actually, you know, uh, one of the great uh, William R. Davis, who was the, the, the founding father of geomorphology uh, in in uh, North America, he, he wrote a, a paper, God, this was like early part of the 20th century, called The Value of Outrageous Hypothesis. Mm. Because he was his his colleagues were getting so constricted and hidebound in their thinking that he said, "Look, we've got to be able to, you know, the, we don't really have things figured out yet, and we have to be open to thinking things that you know he referred to as outrageous." So I I kind of put it in that category. My my approach to it is started starting from our current vantage point and working our way back. If we work our way back, uh, we get to this sort of this veil that separates the Pleistocene from the Holocene, this this period of 3,000 years between 14.6 and 11.6. Mm. And in that period, like I said, there, there appears to have been three tremendous meltwater pulses. Uh, 
where in most of the melting occurred during those three meltwater pulses. Now, you had some more gradual melting uh, superimposed in that whole process. But within that process, when you're getting global sea levels from, say, minus 400 feet up to the current level, again, it's not a smooth transition. There, it's it's periods where it's a slow rise, but then juxtaposed on top of that are these periods of highly accelerated sea level rise. Now, that is because the amount of ice that is melting and being transferred back into the oceans. But here's the thing. It takes heat energy mm -hmm. to melt that ice. Mm -hmm. And in, back in the early 70s, there was a, uh, a, a, a couple of conferences that were held um, that because see in the in, in before radiocarbon dating there were some assumptions about how the duration of this transition from glacial to interglacial age right they were much longer you know 5 to 10 times longer than what was revealed once we had a database uh, from radiocarbon dating because clearly if you have forests growing in Canada 35 or 40,000 years ago mm -hmm. The 10,000 years later were under the ice sheets. Well, then 35 or 40,000 years ago, there, there was no ice sheet there, right? Right, right. But the assumption was that it had been there for 100,000 years, and it maybe took 20,000 years or more for it to gradually melt away and for sea levels to rise. Problem is now, 50s come along, Willard Liberty invents the, the radiocarbon method of dating, by the 1970s now, we have a database that um, makes the scientists realize that the whole process is a hell of a lot quicker than they had previously imagined. So what this led to was the realization that there was a, a problem here. The problem was, is where does the energy come from to melt that ice that quick? That, that, mm. that was the basic problem right there in a nutshell. And so it led to what they referred to as the energy paradox. And the energy paradox, I can actually read to you from this was from a paper that was published in 1973, Arctic and Alpine Research um, in, the, in the journal, which is a peer-reviewed you know, specialist uh, journal. The title of the article is The Wisconsin which is the time period, Laurentide ice sheet. So when you got, um, you know, in, in Europe, it's the Verm, I think is what the, the name of the, the, this, the correlating ice period in Europe was when, when the Fennoscandian ice sheet was covering uh, Scandinavia. Mm. In America, the final phase of the, of the long period of 2 million years of ice ages is named after the state of Wisconsin. So it's the Wisconsin Laurentide ice sheet Subtitled, Dispersal Centers, Problems of Rates of Retreat, and Climatic Implications. So here's, here, here, here's in the abstract of the article. It's talking about isochrone maps because by this time they had developed a whole database of radiocarbon dates. So as the ice has retreated back, let's say that the ice has reached central Minnesota at 15,000, 16,000 years ago. A couple of thousand years later, it's retracted 500 miles to the north. Mm. Well, what happens now is as the ice is receding, vegetation will follow the ice. 
initially it'll be ferns, but then it'll be uh, uh, an ecological succession of of various types of plants. Ultimately, it will be a climax forest within, say, a thousand years. Well, so as a result of being able to go in there and find remains of plants and trees and pollen and seeds and so on, they're able to create this isochrone map, which is a map showing at various stages, like crone, mean like from chronology, right? Mm. Iso meaning the same. So mm. they developed these isochrone maps, and here, here's what the abstract says. Isochrone maps of the late Wisconsin deglaciation of the Laurentide ice sheet enable estimates to be made of changes in the volume and area of the ice sheet. The average marginal recession, average, now important, between 12,000 and 7,000 years before present is estimated as 260 meters per year and varies little between the northwest and southern margins. Mm. Let me stop for a second here. 260 meters, that's what, about 800 and some feet for American listeners. Um, so, and here's the thing, it's this, varies little between northwest and southern margins. What well, you would assume that in a normal uh, deglaciation sequence, the southern margin is going to melt back much faster than the northern margin, right? Because the northern margin is up by the Arctic Circle. Yeah. But what they're seeing is that the disappearance of the ice at the southern margin is the same as at the northern margin. This mm. didn't make any sense. Mm. So then they go on. So as it says here, this paper is mainly concerned with the rates of marginal recession of the Laurentide ice sheet with particular emphasis on the retreat rates experienced during the deglaciation of the northern United States, southern Canada, and the Canadian Arctic between approximately 18,000 and 7,000 years ago. Of primary concern is the energy balance at the margin of the ice sheet required to promote the rapid late Wisconsin retreat. Hmm. And so this was the basic problem here now, that the deglaciation was happening way too fast. So they began to look at what are the, so I'll go on, I'm going to skip ahead here. Yep. And, and this will, this will get to the crux of the, of, of the whole conundrum here. Mm -hmm. The average annual rate of marginal retreat of the Laurentide ice sheet calculated from the reduction in area was 260 meters per year. Now this is average. Mm. Doesn't mean that, Every year it was that much. It just means it averaged over the whole retreat phase, disappearance phase of the ice sheet. That's what the average works out to be. So it could be in sudden movements. Yes, mm. yes. And, and here's now the crux of this. This high figure immediately raises the question of what energy sources are available right. to cause right. such a rapid retreat. Right. A significant aspect of the Laurentide deglacial history is the high energy inputs required. Now, this brings us right around to the crux of the matter. And the energy required is astonishing. That's all I'll say. I mean, it's... it's so, so, so the culprit has to be exoplanetary. It would certainly seem like it. Now, is it the sun, as Robert Schock thinks, or is it hypervelocity impacts, as I have maintained all along? Well, how my thinking has expanded is this. Well, what did you call it? Uh, hi hypo hyper velocity impacts. Does that mean uh, um, a comet? 
it means something. It could be a comet, an asteroid, or some hybrid in between. Okay, you, you don't specify. Okay, that's clever. You, you, you keep it open for all this. I had Freddie Silva on. Are you familiar with his work? Oh, yeah. I'm familiar, yeah. I'm not real knowledgeable, but yeah, I'm familiar. It's pretty similar. He, he came uh, to the same conclusions uh, he explained to us as Hancock without knowing about uh, Hancock's work at the time, mm -hmm. which he thought was positive because it just confirms. But they came to the same result to through two different ways, which again you have to expect if this is reality, right? Mm. And and they both both Hancock and him, of course, favor the same thing as you that there was some kind of impact from some kind of heavenly body to put uh -huh. it like that, or a fragment of it. Yes, yes. So. But you said something earlier, you referred to, um, I think, the day the Earth almost died. Is that where they were yeah. suggesting yeah. that there was uh, Martian catastrophe correlated with Earth catastrophe? Yeah, yeah, of course. We have Dr. Oh, he, he's dead now. What's his name again? Um, he wrote the book about dark matter, missing planets. He, he was... Uh, uh, where was it in JPL? He worked for one of these big American institutions. I'll get his name okay. eventually. I've given him many shout outs, but he made a super solid case. You have to read the book, man. He, he's the first guy who has shown that the asteroid field between Mars and Jupiter all can be calculated back to a common source. And mm -hmm. uh, he says that there was a planet, the biggest, he says, not only the asteroid field, but even all the comets, he, he says, comes from there. He can show how. But long, millions of years ago, there was a planet between, uh, around where Ceres is now, and that was a water-based planet. He didn't go too far in speculating about stuff that really turns people on, like, mm -hmm. did people live there? <laughs> he didn't touch that. He tried to stay sober. But... If it was such a uh, water planet between Mars and Jupiter, obviously, I mean, Jupiter wouldn't take a big hit, but, uh, not almost not being solid at all. But we see Mars on one side is just raped and ravished, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and that uh, we would expect some uh, some debris hitting Earth, if his hypothesis is correct, which is kind of original because everybody else looks at these... I mean, he's talking about a planet in our goddamn solar system. Uh, any comment to this uh, perspective before you move on in your reasoning? Well, uh, in a way, I was going there. Now, okay. I look at Mars, and uh, my, my interpretation is that we're actually seeing a succession of catastrophes overprinted, one on top of the other with Mars. Okay, when did the most recent one occur? I'm open to the idea that it was very recent in a geological sense. I don't know. Um, I would have to read an argument that would that would make the uh, the case that it was a very recent catastrophe. There could yeah, hang on. It's it's Dr. Tom van Flandern. Yeah, and, and he. Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I would. I it, the name was right on the tip of my uh, <laughs> my tongue. <too>. Yes, right. <laughs> van Flandern. Yes. In fact, I have his book, and I did read it. Uh, okay. Okay. Year, years. I mean, it's got to be twenty years ago now. I'm thinking. Yeah. At yeah. least. Um, well, so my thinking is that basically we are looking at a solar system-wide phenomenon. And, and mm. here's what I would get into. And this is where I think it, it really ties together um, 
Graham Hancock's work also with Robert Shocks because we, we did a um, we did a conference a few years ago um, in Little Rock, Arkansas, and Graham was there and presented the uh, evidence and the idea that the catastrophe of twelve to thirteen thousand years ago was caused by a fragment of a comet or multiple fragments of a comet. Uh, Robert Schock argued that it was caused by the sun, solar outbursts, solar storms, slash coronal mass ejections. Mm-hmm. Um, then I did a presentation where I said, well, I think it can be both. And mm-hmm. because I think what we're looking at here is that we entered an epoch, I mean, an impact epoch at the end of the last ice age. And one of the things I had been doing, and this is actually inspired by Robert's work, is looking at his evidence for, for you know, solar storms and those, that kind of thing being the, the cause. And then I came across the idea of sun grazing comets. There's a whole new class of comets that has been identified since we have been deployed solar observing satellites into space. They're called the Kreutz family of comets. And they are seen uh, in tremendous numbers uh, beyond what anybody had imagined. These comets are seen falling into the sun. And as they mm-hmm. approach the sun, of course, the sun's gravity field is so strong that the comets are accelerated to extremely fast uh, velocities. When they plunge into the chromosphere of the sun, even a halley sized nucleus, which is about... Uh, 10 kilometers or six miles in diameter um, Mm -hmm. can actually cause a response in the chromosphere that looks like an incipient coronal mass ejection, which led to the idea that perhaps larger scale impacts into the sun or multiple impacts over a very short period of time could so destabilize the the chromosphere that it leads to hyperactivity in the sun, which includes, you know, uh, coronal mass outbursts wow. and so on. No, notwithstanding that the sun has cycles anyway about being, uh, you know, coming down and then flaring up yes. already, apart from anything influencing it from the outside, right? Yes. Now, so here's what I think we might be actually getting to, is that approximately 25,000 years ago, mm-hmm. a large comet was displaced from the Kuiper disk, which is this zone of this cometary belt that begins out around the orbit of Neptune and then extends way out into deep space and then transitions into the Oort cloud. Now, these are theoretical, but the evidence for the existence... I think the Oort cloud is theoretical, but the Kuiper belt is, is real, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I mean it, there's enough objects been observed out there now Mm. that would suggest that, yeah, there really is a, a a reservoir of comets out there, a huge reservoir. And a lot of planetoids. Yes. Now, if we have a mechanism whereby we can see, because those 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 uh, objects are, are not just floating, they're actually orbiting the sun in a very, very long protracted periodicity. They're actually mm. orbiting. Now, if you had some mechanism whereby you could destabilize that reservoir of comets, you could jostle them. Um, and so they become dislodged from their orbits. You got to bear in mind now being quasi stable. They are, um, they are, uh, 
susceptible to the slightest perturbation. However, in in their uh, you know location in space, there aren't many perturbing things that are going to cause them to ordinarily uh, become displaced from from their orbit, mm. unless you had mm. like uh, let's say a nearby supernova or a passing star or something. That, that that's Velikovsky, isn't it? Well, now it kind of gets into some Velikovsky and stuff, but yeah. where this this where this uh, would probably depart from Velikovsky is this doesn't go into uh, like Venus being discharged from oh, the, okay. the, mm. the 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 you know the great eye of Jupiter and that kind of thing. Um, what this would basically conjecture is that something probably on a galactic level Jeez. causes disruption of the Kuiper disk and will send a cascade of comets moving towards the inner solar system. As these comets pass within the zone of the four great outer planets, uh, multiple things can happen. If they get, it, it, depending on where the uh, the planets are in their orbits, they will either accelerate or decelerate the incoming cometary material. If they accelerate it, what they tend to do is to to throw it back out to a higher orbital shell, if you want to call it that, and they move away from the sun. However, if the thing comes, let's say, uh, if we had a, a visual here, I would show you, if you can imagine, let's say, Neptune orbiting the sun and the comet comes in behind it. Mm. Well, now the gravity field of Neptune would tend to accelerate the comet. If the comet comes in on an orbit that puts it in front of the motion of Neptune, now the gravity field is going to tend to slow the, the, the velocity of that cometary nucleus. Mm. If it does that, it allows it to move in closer to the sun. It'll actually drop closer to the sun. It now comes within the the gravitational influence of Uranus, and Uranus can have the very same type of effect. And so what you end up with, and there have been interesting computer models and studies done on this, those four outer planets are perfectly um, sized and distance between them to essentially uh, create a sort of a bucket brigade process, as it's been called, where Neptune will, let's say, grab some comets coming in from the Kuiper disk, mm -hmm. throw half of them back. And these are, of course, just rough numbers to convey the concept. Throw half of them back out away from the sun and throw half of them towards the sun. Now they fall into the, the, the zone of influence of Uranus. It does the same thing. So, so Wow. So these, these outer planets uh, function as vanguards for us in a way. I mean, they're not a complete filter, but they take some of the worst. Correct. Mm. That's good. Well, what they do, they, they do both mm. because they'll sling some of the material back out mm. away from the sun, but then maybe as much material, they will sling it in towards the sun. Mm. Jupiter is the big one. And that's, you know, that's Zeus hurling his thunderbolt. <laughs> so once it comes within the, the zone of gravitational influence of Jupiter, it's either going to get thrown back out of the solar, the planetary inner solar system, or it gets thrown into the inner solar system where now it comes within the zone of the inner planets, which... Well, wait a minute. Wouldn't some stuff be sucked into Jupiter itself? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just like we saw in 94 when Shoemaker-Levy 9 got sucked into Jupiter. Absolutely. Yeah. we would, And it all depends on trajectory and the geometry mm. of the cometary orbit and how close it comes to Jupiter. The possibility is that, yeah, once... 
see, once it comes into the inner solar system, you can almost think of it as a sort of a ping pong game between Jupiter and, and the sun. Mm. And the cometary masses, mm. just like with Comet Halley, it returns every 76 years, right? It goes yeah, out to right. Jupiter, and then it falls back into the sun, and then back out to Jupiter, back and forth, back and forth. Eventually, it will probably end up either disintegrating into a stream of dust, or it will be sucked into the sun, or it will be sucked into Jupiter. But <laughs> here's what I'm getting at, Al. You might have a period where you have multiple comets, large comets, entering the inner solar system. And those comets now begin to undergo a hierarchy of disintegrations. And they begin to litter the inner solar system with uh, this leftover cosmic debris. Mm. Earth is now passing through those fields of debris. And what will happen is several things. Like I said, one ultimate fate is they disintegrate into cosmic dust. Now, if the Earth encounters enough of that, it can increase the opacity of the Earth's atmosphere, reflect sun back out into space, and cause a cosmic winter sort of event uh-huh. on Earth. Right. The other possibility is large streams of this matter fall into the sun. And based upon some of this recent work, um, looking at the consequences of cometary infall into the sun, it may very be well be that large masses of cosmic material being sucked into the sun at, at hypervelocity speeds might trigger solar storms and coronal mass ejections right. on a major scale. Right. And now we have a mechanism where, one, we can have impacts on Earth, yeah. and we can have a, a, a short-lived hyperactive sun. Right. Right. And, and, and But we have to extend our thinking now to a much broader scale rather than just thinking a single impact on Earth and not any even, – even that requires a major uh, expansion of our thinking. But what I'm suggesting is we need to go beyond that and be thinking in terms of a whole solar system phenomena that's ultimately most likely rooted in something that's happening on the galactic level. Wow, man. Our ancestors never stood any chance. Jeez, that's kind of what it comes down. Unless they became, <laughs> unless they became a spacefaring civilization, right? We have that perspective too, of course. We'll not even touch that today. But <laughs> I think for, no, it's, it's a huge rabbit hole. It takes forever. But yeah. Freddie Silva, I think he he was saying that was it the Leonides? He's talking about one of these that um, comes the to- back the torrid meteor shower. That's it. That's it. And he says we're due for a new one soon. Uh, and I probably would agree with that. Um, yeah, I mean, there are some specific predictions out there. This actually goes back to the work of Fred Whipple in the 1940s, who did a series of photographic studies of the movement of uh, like 14 separate uh, torrid meteors. And by taking a succession of photographs, he was able to chart their elliptical orbits with a high degree of precision. Well, then what he did is once we he had their the geometry of their orbits uh, defined, he was able to, in a sense, play the, play the scene uh, in reverse. And what he realized was when he reversed these orbits, s- uh, separate objects converged onto the same point. One of the, those major convergences, I think, was around 4,000 years ago, and another one was closer to the end of the Ice Age. So what that basically meant was that if you have four objects, say, you, you, you reverse their orbits, and let's say you go back 
10 or 12 or, or, or 100 orbits, well, let's see, the, the, the orbital period of the Taurid meteors is, is between three and four years. So if you backed it up, you know, a few dozen orbits or enough to go back, well, let's see, if we can trace its movement now, where would it have been 4,000 years ago? And then you realize that those four pieces were all in the exact same space, occupying the same space, you realize, okay, there was a divergence right there. So what that was, was he was able to identify uh, fragmentation events mm. where a single object fragmented into multiple objects. Now, there's been a lot of work done on the Torrid meteors since then, mostly uh, based upon the British Neocatastrophist School led by uh, Victor Klube and William Napier, who wrote a book in the 19... Uh, in 1980 called um, The Cosmic Serpent. And in The Cosmic Serpent, they conjectured that the Torrid meteor stream, very ancient meteor stream, first entered the solar system uh, of maybe 10 to 30, 10, uh, let me back up, 20 to 30 millennia ago as a gigantic comet, then began to undergo a hierarchy of disintegrations, which resulted in... Uh, impact epochs on earth as earth regularly encountered the debris from the breakup of this very large comet which is called the torrid stream the torrid family of of meteor streams because they all go back to a single original progenitor comet that was extremely large maybe 100 to 200 kilometers in diameter. So it's a huge Is this the Young Andreas impact hypothesis, also known as Clovis com cometive? Well, here the evidence to suggest now that it was the Torrid stream that was responsible for the uh, impact proxies yeah. deposited 12,900 years ago, mm. coinciding with the major spike of megafaunal extinction, the sudden disappearance of the Clovis was, in fact, part of the torrid system. And, right, that's how it's connected. That's how it's connected, yes. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show... You can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. But there's those who, who claim there's a supernova involved here. Have you heard about that? Uh, well, okay, so let's back up to the hypothetical trigger for the dislodging of the, that's Paul LaViolette. <laughs> yes, yeah. thank you, yes. Um, yeah, and I read his book quite a few years ago too. So I've gotten a little vague on the specifics, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's his idea, supernova event. Now, where I might go with that without backtracking and trying to recover all the specifics of his argument, I know there's been, a lot of controversy around his ideas. But, but he's not alone. There's uh, a guy called uh, G. Robert, uh, too. Right. Now, and probably others. See, where I would tend to think is that a supernova might be, you know, I was talking about, you know, what triggers the initial disruption of the stable comet orbits in the Kuiper disk. Yeah. 
perhaps a passing star, perhaps a supernova event. Mm, mm. Now, I think what he's doing is he's drawing a direct connection between the supernova and like the gravity wave when it strikes, when it passes through the solar system. I don't know, to be quite honest, Al. No, but you know what? From everything you said, it seems pretty, if not obvious, at least probable that we could probably call it, a, you said ping pong, I would say billiard, you know, that the supernova could be the white uh, ball, uh-huh. and then that could hit one ball, which again hits another ball, that could be the sun, right? Yeah. Or, or these, uh, these comets you talk about. So, like you said, it's not an either or here. It's, it's a multiple, uh, it's a perfect storm, isn't it? A perfect storm, well put. Well put, Al. That's exactly what I would, how I would characterize it. I think that multiple things happened. There were feedbacks involved. Yeah. Um, you know, <clears throat> getting back to that energy paradox, you have to have a, a massive energy dump into the global atmosphere, into the global environment to accelerate that melting. I mean, one of the things. I mean, if it's a gal- galactic catastrophe, of course it has to be a huge right. energy source. <laughs> so, so the the energy source that immediately would affect the Earth would be two. I think one, the sun, mm. a hyperactive sun. Mm. The other would be a direct impact, because a a, a velo- an object, let's say a mile, a kilometer, two three kilometers in diameter, striking the Earth at ten to twenty times the speed of the muscle, muscle, muzzle velocity of a high-powered rifle, that is going to be inconceivably disastrous. And it is going to inject a tremendous amount of energy into the terrestrial environment upon impact. Now, if what I'm thinking, and I've thought this now for decades, that one of the explanations for the rapid melting and destruction of the great ice complexes is a series of hypervelocity impacts. Mm. And some of the, the landscapes that I've been exploring in North America, mm-hmm. I've been for about a quarter of a century now logging up tens of thousands of miles in the field, studying the direct effects of these tremendously cataclysmic floods. And they are, really beyond almost the ability of the human mind to even grasp the scale of. Um, like last spring, I took a group of 30 people out, and we spent five days traversing some of the f- flood-sculpted landscapes of the Pacific Northwest. <clears throat> and after five days, I mean, we had covered a lot of territory, and we had only looked at a small piece of it. But we're looking at, we're looking at uh, canyons that were cut in a matter of days that are nearly a thousand feet deep and a mile wide. We're looking at places where hundreds of feet of bedrock have just been ripped away. Mm. We're looking at places where there are massive amounts of sediment deposited, like in, uh, you know, you would say in, in bars, what are called eddy bars that are, you can find along any Creek or river, um, in the aftermath of a, of a heavy rain, when it's been a flood, you can go out there and you'll see that it's created these deposits, usually sand and small gravel, typically might be a few tens to a hundred or a couple hundred feet long. We're looking at some of these deposits that are 300 and 400 feet thick and four or five miles long. The scale of these phenomena is, is impossible to grasp until you've actually spent time 
out in the field directly relating and, and observing these landscapes. And then you begin to realize, my God, these, these phenomena here, I'm beginning to see now how if something like this happened, mm. there would be little left in the aftermath as a legacy for the future. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what's the u- largest crater we know about today? The largest crater? Um, is that the one up in, in uh, Siberia or wh- wherever? No, um, well, there's t- there's two issues there. One, largest crater that has maybe happened in historic times, largest crater in Earth history. Now, the largest crater, I believe, is Vrita Fort in South Africa, which I believe is around two to 300 miles in diameter. What's, the, what's that in kilometers, approximately? Well, uh, 200 miles would be 300 kilometers, roughly. Okay, okay. So, um but it's very, very old. I mean, it's hundreds of millions of years old. So. Yeah, but obviously, like like uh, every ancient civilization says, tells us, it's not just been one catastrophe. It's been uh, a, a cyclic, like downfall. But yeah. what I'm I'm thinking here would there be a practical difference? It probably would, and you would be the perfect guy to explain it. That if it was uh, one of these catastrophes, let's stick to the younger uh, after the younger dryers, which is our primary focus today okay would it be a huge difference if it was one huge chunk that hit earth or if it was like a million smaller pieces uh there would be distinct differences i think um it'd be like to put it to the human scale um the difference between being shot with a say a 45 caliber gun with a single bullet as opposed to being shot with a shotgun Mm. they're Mm. both going to be really catastrophic Mm. however Mm multiple impacts events is going to be much more widely dispersed. The model that I'm sort of conceiving of at this point, which is based primarily upon evidence, is that you had a series of large impacts. However, these larger impacts, which have been in the kilometer range, impacted directly into the ice sheet itself, but they were also part of a much more complicated stream of material. And so what you had was a series of impacts and sometimes these impacts might have been an isolated event because, again, we're talking about Earth transecting the torrid meteor stream, which it does twice each year. Yeah. Isn't it now? You know, Around now? Soon? July? Uh, the, the next, uh, no, we, we passed, we're through the stream now. Okay, good. Late June, early July. We're pretty much, yeah, we're, okay. you know, yeah. The Tunguska event of 1908, which was, I think, very likely uh, a torrid meteor stream encounter, mm-hmm. it happened on June 30th. Right. And that's right, right at the peak yeah. of Earth crossing mm-hmm. the stream. It crosses, the second time it crosses the stream in the course of the years, late October, early November. So we're good for, yeah, good for a couple of months. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So the question is, is how many undiscovered bolides or objects are still out there in that stream right um now of course as in this process in the early stages in the in the youthful stages of the stream there's going to be a whole lot more debris and that debris is also going to be tend to be clustered over time the debris is going to get more and more dispersed and it's going to get sucked up by the planets it's going to disintegrate into this dust. It's going to fall into the sun. And so the stream now is not nearly as dense as it would have been 10 or 20,000 years ago. 
you mm. see. Mm. That's not to say, though, that there isn't still danger mm. or still objects lurking within that stream we haven't discovered yet that could cause tremendous yeah yeah because they don't have monopoly on 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 hitting us so right yeah right mm. and the torrid stream is only one of multiple streams yeah um yeah. you know the leonids the Geminids, the draconids um i think even in recent history earth has had several encounters with members of the draconid stream but but could the current climate change going on now could that be a sign of something um working itself up uh, further out i do th yes i i think most mm. personally i do believe that the increase in carbon dioxide over the last century or two has played a role but i don't think it's the dominant role mm. um and you know that's the other thing that i like to study and look at is climate change and environmental change rates scales magnitudes all of that kind of stuff uh timing the tempo the periodicities whether it's cyclical or random and one of the things that i constantly come across is in in looking at the subject of paleoclimatology mm -hmm. is that a lot of the stuff that has happened in climate and environmental history on earth has been way more severe than anything we've experienced in the last century mm. and there's nothing really that's going on now whether it's floods droughts hurricanes uh fires anything that is unprecedented no 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 of course <laughs> Yeah. But, uh, but um, if we look at, uh, I mean, NASA has come out officially and said that currently there's climate change on every planet in our solar system. Some of them are, right. are undergoing cooling, some of them global warming. And when I learned that, I knew for sure it's not my car who's contributing to this thing. Right. <laughs> so you can sleep well tonight, Al. Knowing exactly. that you're not. Well, I, I got myself an e electrical car since then, but. <laughs> okay. But they pollute just as much anyway in the production. <laughs> well, that's right. That's right. So I guess you're going to have to continue to feel guilty. <laughs> yeah, if I'm listening to the powers that be. Yes. But we don't have that much more time, and I have still a few questions for you. Sure. Uh, and I want to ramp it up now with a, a little more. Let's take on our speculation hat a little. Okay. Because what you said about this huge time period from 8,000 to 15,000, it made me thinking that our ancestors, if they were advanced, I mean, they were obviously more advanced than after the whole thing happened, right? Then it was reset. Mm -hmm. But... They must have known about all this stuff. At least they must have known. Of course, they knew about cycles. They, we know they studied the sun. Most We talked about this before we started, that yes. most of the ancient technologies is a remnant surviving. And that means, that kind of explains how they could make colonies, like, for example, Egypt. Because if it was like this sudden wave coming, nobody knew about it, there wouldn't be any time to... For, locate safe spaces and set up advanced uh, systems there. But if this, if they knew about all this, and they probably knew more than we do today, because they weren't that arrogant as we are. They were much more respectful and in 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 uh, flow with nature. Right. So that kind of made me realize that okay, that's how they could set up these uh, colonies. But there is this, uh, it's a, sh a YouTube show actually, but the guy is brilliant. Uh, I, I, he has to forgive me because I forgot both the name of his show and the name of the dude. But where I'm getting at is that I think he broke this story. And that's that uh, 
Mm-hmm. And, and everybody listening now, you should go and check his three different programs about this. The latest one he had, I think, this year. And that was amazing because here he added new releases from CIA, of all things. Mm. Wouldn't think they were interested in these things. But he has located, you know, there's always been this, where is Atlantis, where is Atlantis, right? And I oh, yeah. tend to favor that it is... It was between uh, Europe and Africa on the one hand and America on the other. And Atlantis wasn't just a one single place. It was a civilization. But it seems that the crux of Atlantis was in the eye of Sahara. So have you heard about the Richard structure in Mauritania? Oh, yes. I, I, in fact, I did in my podcast, Cosmographia, I devoted 10, maybe 10 hours or more to dissecting Plato's Atlantis account. Um, and I also, then I had concluded with a whole episode uh, devoted just to the recat structure and discussion of whether or not it fit the profile for being Atlantis. I concluded that it was not what Plato's talking about with some, with some qualification, mm. that being that, when we go back again into the Ice Age, now again, remember that important number, Meltwater Pulse 1B, 11,600 years ago, mm-hmm. correlates directly with the subsidence of Atlantis, which, to me, all of the clues that Plato leaves places it in the mid-Atlantic. Now, here's something to, to keep in mind, and I pointed this out recently, um, because a a, uh, a lady, uh, Johanna James, did a... Um, like a 22-minute synopsis of my 10 hours of discussion about Plato's Atlantis. And she basically came, after listening to 10 hours, she was pretty much convinced that that this is was on the right path. And um, so basically, Plato describes, you know, a power coming out of the Atlantic. He, he's very clear on, despite the fact that people have, have questioned whether the, the Straits of Gibraltar are the pillars of Hercules that he was talking about. I think it's clear from the context of his dialogues that they are, that, yeah. Yeah, and, and the locals agree. I was in Gibraltar just a couple of months ago. <laughs> okay. They, they pride themselves of being that specific place, but go yeah, on. They're, they're, yeah, they're not going to like somebody coming and say, hey, the pillars of Hercules, <laughs> that's not them. They were you know, somewhere right. else altogether. But, yeah, yeah. So I think within the context of his narrative, it's clear that he's talking about an Atlantic power. He even says that this power came forth out of the Atlantic, and it was based on an island, and and then later he he describes how it's actually multiple islands. Exactly, it's 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 not uh, just one town. It's a it's a huge right. If they were advanced, they would have a civilization. Right. He is describing a maritime empire. Right. Is exactly. what he's describing, exactly. and that had that had the ability to sail the seas and navigational skills, which is a far cry from you know. Uh, you know, anti-gravity flying saucers and stuff like you were referring to, because he, Plato never says that. He he described... No, I, it would be a stone-based technology and sound-based, it seems, from the evidence and from the ancient sources, right? Yes, uh, and that's a whole other interesting subject that we can get into on another discussion mm. about what technological forms uh, an advanced civilization may have taken. And yeah. it, of course, doesn't necessarily have to look anything like 
our modern civilization. But what Plato describes is is essentially a maritime civilization raised by an order of magnitude. You know, something along the lines of the Minoans or the Phoenicians, something like that. Um, with had that had the ability to navigate at least the Atlantic Ocean. Now, we we, we refer to the Atlantic Ocean, but um, you know, in, in Greek, uh, the the word for ocean is thalassi, hmm. and if you go back and you read the original Greek, Atlantic Ocean, Atlantic, the, 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 the name of our ocean was spelled Alpha Tau Lambda Alpha Nu uh, Tau Iota Sigma. In the Greek, the sigma was a sibilant. That means it's a fricative. In other words, it's formed uh, with the tongue at the front of the mouth behind the teeth as opposed to a plotive which is formed with the back of the tongue. Like, so the difference is, for example, you know that at least in English, the letter C has two sounds, mm -hmm. right? Just so as a fricative, it's an S sound. As a plotive, it's a K sound. Mm -hmm. So when you say car, covenant, right. character, right. that's a plotive. When you talk about city, sensor, whatever, mm. where it's a soft C. Mm. Okay? Mm. Got that? Okay, in the original Greek, the final sigma was a sibilant. So in other words, it was a soft S sound, not a hard C sound. So in the original Greek, the Atlantic Ocean was the Atlantis Ocean. Mm. I mean, that would have been the literal pronunciation and mm. translation, the Atlantis Ocean. Mm. So it's almost like, well, right there, it's in your face. <laughs> yes, and we know, of course, our source is probably a remnant and there's a huge ridge. But we have to take into account something that really is taken into account, it seems to me. And that's that they just assume that how, how the surface of the Earth looked then is the same as now, which is completely bull, because you just told us earlier today that... 30% ice was yeah in, in, in contrast to 10 and now which means that in fact I think that which if anyone ever if our civilization today ever gets serious about finding this out what we have to apply is underwater ecology like uh, of course Hancock has done because we know look Dogalan, mm -hmm. Tula, yeah. Yeah. Sudalan, Friesland mm -hmm. We, knew, we know there all have been places where people have lived, which earlier uh, and presumably before the last, the fall of the last ice age was inhabitable. And we also know that uh, Sahara was green and lush. Yeah. And although I do tend to agree that it's from Atlantis, this guy that I mentioned, I, I'm giving him a second shout out. Go check his three videos on the Metaforks. He, he makes a point of how it looked back then. And this would actually be a part of the uh, Atlantic. It wouldn't be a part of uh, Europe or Africa. When he shows the latest scientific evidence of how it would look back then. And that coincides with some uh, uh, releases from CIA. I know it's it sounds far-fetched, outlandish, but CIA has, you know, the Freedom of Information Act. They've released some yeah. stuff about this. Why would they be interested? I mean, I know why they would be interested, but, you know... you. Normal per person would ask, why, why on earth would they be interested in this? So I just find that very interesting. And I think there is a reconciliation possibility between the 
Rickard structure and the classical Atlantic Ocean thing. Okay. Of course, I'm not married to either because I don't know, but I, I'm keeping my mind open on that uh, for the record. Well, I, I, what I can recommend, Al, mm. is uh, when you find the time, listen to the 10 hours that I devoted. Indeed, I will. By the way, did you do this independent of this guy or did that news hit you and th- therefore you took it up? I did that independent, although I think by that wow. that time I had maybe heard of the recat structure. But I mean, I actually heard of the recat structure decades ago when I f- was early days of researching uh, impact craters and the first NASA photographs came where the speculation was that it was a great multi-ringed impact structure and then was later shown not to be an impact structure because it it had zero evidence of the typical impact proxies that should be associated. It's true, but what it now seems to be is that, uh, but he explains it. Uh, You you should actually see those videos because you are qualified to, you know, see the level of... uh, Well, I, I have watched one of them. I have watched okay. one of them. That was okay. Jimmy at Bright Insight. Um, Bright Insight. Thank you. Yes. Yes. And and uh, again, I I devoted episode nine. I'm up to like I don't even know seventy five episodes now. But okay. I, I start. I launched the Cosmographia podcast with this in depth examination of the Atlantean ideas, and that's where okay. I went in and I dissected Plato. And a lot of people were going, "What about the recat structure? What about the recat structure?" Right. Yeah, it was in vogue then. Yeah. Mm. So. I devoted almost the whole episode number nine okay. to a discussion of the recat structure and how it may align or not align with Plato's details, because Plato is basically our sole source for the Atlantis story. There are other references to it, Diodorus, perhaps uh, Proclus, which provide some tantalizing details that are a little bit different from Plato, which suggests to me that there was other sources now the thing that yeah, I, but wait a minute there's there's sources in india and south america too that yes yeah right yeah. that's exactly what i'm referring okay, to. okay that's exactly what i'm referring mm. to yes there are other sources but even within within the greek tradition there are yeah absolutely the vedas absolutely the the the, the central american traditions about atlan mm. and descended from immigrants from the from the east i mean come on mm. but but within Greece itself, within um, the Greek tradition, there are tantalizing clues that Plato wasn't the only Greek that, you know, so in other words, he wasn't just, he didn't just make it up. That's right. Now, he may have grafted some of his moral and ethical teachings and some of his political conceptions onto it, mm. but the idea is that it existed independent of Plato. The fact that I, as I just uh, pointed out, uh, that somebody in in Greek times referred to the Atlantic Ocean as the Atlantis Ocean to me is very suggestive that there was an independent tradition of uh, the Atlantis and its association with the Atlantic Ocean. Now, if we're going to be but, but, but wait a minute, how would you explain uh, if you take if if we go with the hypothesis that it was that the ridge at I'm assuming the Atlantic Ridge would be a remnant of uh, land that we lived on. How how does this fit with what we know about ocean levels and how the land masses looked, etc.? Is it? Uh, uh, can you make a scientific case for such a hypothesis? Well, that's why I devoted ten hours <laughs> to <laughs> right. going into great detail 
Okay. To make the scientific case. And, and I'm assuming the conclusion is yes, you can make a scientific case for it. Yes, you can make a scientific case for it. Mm. Okay. And and okay. The, 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 the idea of the recap, now see, Plato describes an imperialist civilization and that had colonies, all right? So yeah. why not have a colony in North Africa? Certainly that's plausible. Mm. Could Could they have been at the recap structure? Yes, why not? That's not so such a huge stretch of the imagination to think that. Is the recat structure multi-ringed like Plato describes? Yes, it is. But I also go into detail and I have, you know, I'm I do part of my profession is I do three-dimensional architectural computer modeling. So I did a computer model, 3D computer model of Plato's city of Atlantis, the multi-ringed city. Mm -hmm. To scale using his his description in Stadia, which mm -hmm. is a which is a well established metrological unit from those days, and so I recreated a model. And in my episode number nine on the recat structure, I actually juxtapose the model, the scale model of Plato's city of a multi ringed city mm -hmm. onto the recat structure mm -hmm. at the same scale. Mm -hmm. So you can actually see that. You'll see that. Yeah, well, well, was it a huge uh, discrepancy or did it somehow fit? It was a huge discrepancy. Which way? Uh, well, the multi-ring city is much smaller. Oh, I see. And the recat structure is about 10 times greater in diameter than the than Plato's multi-ring city. Mm. Now, multi-rings, you know, where do you, in nature, where do you find multi-rings? You find them in these upheaval domes like, like recat structure and in multi-ringed impact structures could could one of those kinds of natural phenomena multi-ringed structures in nature provided the inspiration for um, someone to build a multi-ringed structure sure why not and, and we do find uh, structures all over the planet from stonehenge to avebury to you know here in north america up in the ohio river valley we have multiple remnants of huge multi-ringed structures in fact there was one uh and in my presentation on atlantis i show a correlation between a multi-ringed structure in ohio which fits very very close to plato's atlantis description now I'm not saying, oh, this is Atlantis. What I'm saying, though, is that it seems like our ancestors all over the world were very intrigued by the idea of ringed circular structures and even more so by multi-ringed structures. So like Stonehenge, for example, laid out on a multi-ringed circular template, you know, the Sar And I think the structure in Turkey, too. Yeah. Uh, what's it called? Um, Gobekli Tepe? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I am... You know, I think Jimmy has done something really cool. I mean, he's called attention to a natural phenomena. He's made the argument that it was the, the basis for Plato's Atlantis. And it's caused a lot of people to be interested in that. And it's yeah. generated a lot of discussion, which is a good thing. Um, I don't think the fact that I have, uh, I think, rebutted the idea that that was Atlantis, uh, I don't think it's created any 
animosity between I've never met Jimmy and I suspect I, I will. No, I mean, that would be ridiculous. He's like you. He's a truth seeker. In, in academia, yes, people take stuff personal. Right. But we are just trying to find out what's going on. Jimmy is, you are. I mean, we're on the same team, man. All right. But um, I take issue with the idea that our ancestors observed something fascinating and then imitated it. I mean, of course, it could happen, but I think it was done for the concentric circles thing in uh, their architecture. I think that was done for practical purposes and spiritual purposes. Just the same reason, I think, the pyramids were deliberately made like that because of certain effects. We, yeah. we don't have time to get into that today, but next time we talk, we're probably going to touch ideas that conflates with what I'm hinting at, if you see what I mean. <laughs> sure. And yeah. I mean, there, there, and you know, interestingly, when you read Timaeus, I mean, what, what is the yeah. prologue to Timaeus? He's describing the myth of Phaeton. Mm. And what is Phaeton if it's not a cosmic impact? Mm, mm, mm. You know, he, he says that um, this has the form of the myth, but it really refers to, um, well, yeah, in fact, I can even read you the quote directly from Plato. Here it is. There is a, now this is the this is the elderly Egyptian priest talking to Solon. Mm. He says, there's a story which even you have preserved that once upon a time, Phaeton, the son of Helios, having yoked the steeds in his father's chariot, but because he was not able to drive them in the path of his father, burned up all that was upon the earth and was himself destroyed by a thunderbolt. Hmm. Now, this has the form of a myth but it really signifies a declination of the bodies moving around the earth and in the heavens and a great conflagration of all things upon the earth recurring at long intervals of time. Now, that is pretty explicit. Uh, when you're talking about a declination of bodies moving around the earth and in the heavens, I think you're talking about physical bodies, asteroidal material, cometary material, orbiting in fact, it's likely that the Tunguska object that exploded over Siberia in 1908 was for a short while a satellite of the Earth. Wow. And then was drawn in eventually. <clears throat> so so we had two moons. Yes, although the Tunguska object obviously was much, much, it was like a speck. Well, if it was closer, it could probably look bigger, big enough, if you see what well, I mean. Well, yeah, it could have. The thing was, is that when it did show up, though, it it was only visible for a very short period of time as it's penetrating the atmosphere. Um, five yeah, but what does, what does short period of time mean in this perspective? Uh, 10 seconds to half a minute. Oh, that is a short minute, <laughs> short time. <laughs> yeah, because because the people who I mean, it came out of the the sky like like a flash. People were you know um, people thirty miles away from now. This object enters the atmosphere. It's about one hundred and fifty feet in diameter, which is um, you know um, maybe about roughly fifty meters. It's roughly fifty meters in diameter. Oh, okay, that's small. Yeah, but it's moving super fast. It penetrates the atmosphere and it explodes with the energy of a 15 to 20 megaton hydrogen bomb. Jeez. 15 million tons of TNT were suddenly released yeah. into the Earth's atmosphere. The important thing to understand about that Tunguska event is it didn't strike the Earth itself. It didn't actually create a crater in the Earth. It exploded 
in the atmosphere, roughly five miles altitude. Oh, wow. And the shock wave extended out about 20 to 25 miles in every direction. It ultimately blew down over 800 square miles, which would be about 2,400 square kilometers of old growth forest. Roughly, they estimate between 80 and 90 million trees. Old growth, big, big. So, so, so there's no crater up there in Tungurstan? Not in the classic sense, no. Oh, okay. No, there isn't. Okay, okay. There is a lake that may, it's controversial, it may have been produced by a secondary object or a piece of the Tunguska object that spalled off during its entry into the atmosphere and actually did strike the ground. But for the most part, no, there's not a crater in the classical sense, like a big hole dug in the ground, mm. because of the fact that it blew up in the atmosphere. What it did leave was this legacy of blown down trees, right. 80 to 90 million huge trees blown down in a, in a matter of seconds. And there were not a lot of people there. There's no confirmed immediate deaths. Oh, I think there was an electromagnetic pulse too, wasn't it? Like 10X or what they call it? Yes. Now, see, there was a, a whole host of secondary consequences of this of this event, um, mm -hmm. including a seismic response, about 5.6 on the Richter scale. Right. A seismic tremor passed through the Earth. Yeah. Uh, and in, in consistent with some of the electric universe theories, there were, as this thing is entering in, there were massive lightning bolts discharging as the thing penetrates the atmosphere. But this would be the voltage potential between the object and the Earth. There was also probably a gaseous component that um, because if it was a part of the torrid system, there was, uh, it may have had, it was originally a comet. So it may have had volatile gases associated with it. And mm. for the following uh, for the month following the event, there were really vivid, brightly lit nights all over Europe and Scandinavia. You could go back. Uh, yeah, we, we used to it from the Borealis, you know, right. But this is, this is a different phenomena. See, mm. there was no, no co connection with the borealis. Now there may have been borealis at the at the time, but that wasn't what was causing it to be uh, so bright at midnight that you could be outside no. reading newspapers. And of course, no, of course, right? Yeah. <laughs> they must have thought the world was going to an end. <laughs> well, the people in the people in the Tungus, the Tungusi people who lived in that area, yes, they thought it was the end of the world. No, I mean, uh, like normal Europeans, if you can read a newspaper in the middle of the night, they must, did they understand? Did they know back then what ha no, happened? No, they had no idea what it was. So the end is not... I imagine some of them might have thought that. <laughs> Others might have thought, you know, because it wasn't a particularly, you know, now if it went dark during the middle of the day, that would be yeah, one yeah. thing. But having the light at night, man, I don't know. I don't know how people reacted to it. That's interesting. Other than, yeah, there, there were people out at midnight reading newspapers. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so the point is, there was a whole host of secondary consequences to the Tunguska, right. event, including genetic alterations within the plant life of the uh, impact, oh. which is brings up a whole host that leads us into the realm of exobiology, which right. could be you know saved for another topic. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so Plato pretty much he he describes what I think in his reference to the myth of Phaeton. I think that Phaeton describes, uh, I think, a comet, yeah. refers to a comet. In fact, several of the uh, ancient commentators thought that that's what it was actually referring to, that the myth of Phaeton. Yeah, the commentaries of Proclus on the Timaeus of Plato in five books. I'm referring to the translation by Thomas Taylor, and he's uh, 
he says here, the fable respecting Phaeton, however, requires a manifold discussion. Um, and then he goes on, I'm not going to read the whole quote, but um, I'm just going to end up with, um, and it will be among the number of things which may be easily accomplished if it is supposed that this Phaeton was a comet, mm. which being dissolved produced an intolerable dryness from vehement heat, for this supposition is generally adopted. Porphyry, therefore, says that certain signs may be assumed from the motion of comets. And so so here's an ancient reference to the myth of Phaeton, which is um, directly referring to the idea of the myth of Phaeton being based upon an actual phenomenon, mm. a cometary encounter, a, a, an encounter between Earth and a comet. And it very well may have been part of the, the, the Torrid system at the time this happened yeah we pressed for time i know you have to go soon um yeah it's true can you afford uh, before we pitch your stuff uh websites and stuff can you afford one more question i can mm -hmm. so you mentioned velikovsky was big on astronomy archaeology geology paleontology even mythology but he didn't do too much anthropology i think which cremo of course has done uh, a lot of yeah but if we want to understand this thing, I'm coming back to the underwater things because you said it yourself, Atlantis was a coast culture, as most are. Even today, the most advanced places are, are by the sea and uh, the more rural stuff is more traditional. Mm -hmm. So we must assume that in this period, especially after the the big one in uh, 12.5 or 11.5 or whenever it was before uh, our time, uh, we must assume that there will be abundance of evidence submerged. For example, they found in the Baltic Sea, have you heard about this, the Baltic Sea structure? Yes. Which is a stone phenomenon that go, it went completely black. NATO suddenly after all the hula hop and huzza around it, NATO came in and took over and forbid everyone to go there and had a, well, the official story was that they had a military drill there. And after that, it's it's gone black. The uh, divers, I've tried to get them on. They, they don't seem to give uh, interviews anymore, but hmm. be that as it may, it's just one example of many. I know Hancock favors several zones around the world and we have the pyramid alleged pyramid outside of cuba do you have any have you made a model yourself or have you seen any believable model of how the earth may have looked in terms of landmass and ocean before oh yes the huge one oh yes in fact i have in my in my presentations i've got digital relief maps where i show for example where the uh Ice Age coastlines would have been. And like you just said, uh, during the Ice Age, and, and even when we look at the rise of modern civilization, we see the first urban complexes tend to be along coastlines because the urban complexes arise because they are integrated into a series of trade networks, right? Yeah. Well, so these trade networks can be overland, but they also can be uh, port cities. <clears throat> so when you think of the fact that during the Ice Age, coastlines of the world were dramatically different than now. Yeah. Um, so a map of the Earth drawn from, say, 15,000 years ago would look very different. I mean, if you look at North America and Asia were a single continental mass, mm. for example. 
The Bering Land Bridge was not just a narrow little isthmus. It was a vast, huge amount of land, more than the, the, the size of Alaska, that that integrated North America with, with Asia. Um, but yeah, so, and, and, you know, the, the British Isles didn't exist as Isles. They were part of the, well, you mentioned Doggerland, you know, yeah. so the North Sea didn't exist. The North Sea was, was part of it was covered by glaciers and the other part was inhabited by great megafauna. So, uh, yeah, and we, that's the oil we are earning money on today is obviously the remnants of the organic life that was there then. At some point, with that the organic life that was there at some point, unless of course you mm. accept the abiotic hypothesis of of gold, but that's another discussion. But yeah, so the point being is that I think most of the major co uh, community complexes that would have evolved during the Little Ice Age would have been on coastlines, not Little Ice Age during the Great Ice Age would have been on mm. the coastlines and mm. even in river valleys and. One of the things I've gone into great detail on my podcast is a discussion of the concept of the underfit river, which is that modern rivers are flowing in channels that are orders of magnitude too big for the river that's flowing in them. And there's already a movement now towards the realization that these large channels were not cut over millions of years of gradual erosion, but were created during huge fluvial events, hydrological events that carved them in one or a small series of cataclysmic episodes and that the modern rivers just naturally occupy these ancient channels from these gigantic floods. Well, if you had a, uh, a, a civilization, if you had a city, a, a village, anything um, in one of these river valleys, it's going to be completely gone. There's not going to be any trace of it. Right. Secondly, if you have a, city along the coastline, it's now going to be 400 feet underwater. And if you have, if there's any uh, cataclysmic uh, component to the rise of sea level, which I think that it was, we know already that just the modern surf can be uh, highly erosive. But if you throw... Yeah, but hang on, hang on. If, the, if it was 30% ice and it's 10 now, obviously that must have contributed to the water rise. That's totally what contributed to the water rise. Yes. Yeah. Well, there are also, I don't know if you're aware of it, but there's also theories about water coming from outer space. Yeah, but I, do. I know it sounds weird, but, but there is a scientific case for that. Well, I would have to see that because uh, from of what course. I've seen, that's <laughs> not necessary. I mean, when you transfer 6 million cubic miles of, which would be uh, roughly 20 million cubic kilometers of ice, when you melt that and transfer back that into the oceans, that accounts for, the, in other words, the, the, uh, the volume of ice on land is commensurate with the volume of ocean water removed necessary to drop sea levels by 400 feet. Right. We know 400 feet because the ice age shorelines, remnants of them are still there 400 feet below. Right. Okay. So, but I think you're right on with the idea that the future of archeology, span I really think is going to be marine archeology. span Yeah. Problem is, when that sea level rose, it wasn't necessarily a smooth, gentle process. There would have been episodes where it would have been a highly energetic phenomena that could have tended to mostly erase the remnants of all but major infrastructure that might have been built on that coastline. Yeah. But we shall see. I mean, we're just, we haven't really explored more than 1% of the ocean's floor in detail. So mm. I think a lot remains to be discovered. 
I've made the point that there's scientific evidence that the rapid increase in weight dumped into the North Atlantic with the rapid melting of the ice sheets caused a substantial subsidence along the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. I make the argument that if there was an Atlantean um, civilization, that it would have been located on the now sunken Azores Plateau. Right. Uh, the and the Azores Islands are the uh, are the mountaintops that that is the mountain range that is part of this plateau. Yeah. And I spent ten hours, literally ten hours, dissecting Plato's account and looking at the scientific evidence that such a subsidence did actually take place along the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Yeah, and people uh, run over and, and listen to it. We're going to, in a minute now, tell you where to find it. But but just the last, very last comment to this discussion here now. Okay. What about the pole shift? Because many people make a lot out of that. Do you believe, first of all, if that has happened? And if it happened, could we sur- could anyone really survive such a dramatic thing? Well, as far as pole shift, I have a very qualified conception of, of the pole shift, which I, which is complicated. I don't know if I can get to it in a minute. You, you can't, but you can give us the conclusion. The conclusion is... And we'll just take your word for how you got there. <laughs> okay. Um, my work is based upon that of, of Charles Hapgood, who, who wrote a book. Ah, right. Yeah. Okay. Path of the Pole. And he talks about... And he wrote this book. It was published, even the first version of it was published before plate tectonics and continental drift was an accepted theory of geology. But basically what I would argue is that there could have been a period of accelerated continental movement primarily as the result of this gigantic, gigantic redistribution of surface mass on the geoid, which would require lateral movement of the continental, uh, with the, of the continental cratons in addition to vertical movement. So it, it's complicated geophysics, but what I would uh, argue is that if there is any kind of a pole shift, it comes as a consequence of these geophysical events, not as the trigger. And right. because there definitely needs to be readjustment of the, of the continental masses as a result of this See, and I said quad twenty-four quadrillion tons. That's only the, the Atlantic. That that's not even a third of the total volume or, or or mass of material transferred from the continents back into the ocean bases. This transfer of material requires a response. Uh, the, the the term would be rheology, which is a term used in geophysics to describe the the distribution of mass within the the within the volume of the earth this massive transfer of weight and mass would require a rheological response within the within the geoid including accelerated crustal movement hmm. okay so that is where i would kind of converge with some of uh, Hapgood's thinking, so, so you're basically saying the land masses change. It's not the yes. earth, it's not the Earth that spins. Correct. Ups. My problem with that is that the 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 inertial mass of the Earth's rotation on its axis is so inconceivably great mm-hmm. that even I mean the mathematics of this has been worked out decades ago. Even a uh, 
a major hypervelocity hyper impact of an object two or 300, 400 miles in diameter is not going to knock the Earth off its axis. Wobble? Yes. Will there be a, a response, a, a wobble? Yes. Would there be a pole shift? No. Hmm. But could there be accelerated plate tectonics and continental movement? And I think the answer is very plausible that it could. But, but is this just for the lack of finding any causation that can manage to, to do this with the Earth? Is that the problem? I would say so, yes. And and the problem also is, you know, you know, there's in the Velikovskian model, it was the entire mass of the Earth. And in the uh, the Hapgood model, it was only the crust of the Earth yeah. that moved. Yeah. But there is this, I don't know if you're, you're familiar with the work of Dr. Jocelyn Goodwin. Uh, yes. I, yeah. He, he, he made some, actually, although his main subject isn't this, he's made a few books on this. And he made a big point out of in the golden age, according to the myths, then there were permanent mm -hmm. winter and permanent summer because the earth wasn't tilted on its axis. So something, if this is a literalism, if the Earth ever was spinning right, mm -hmm. then something obviously has tilted it. And I'm not that arrogant that I'm going to say just because I can't see today any potential. I mean, how old is the universe? I mean, what could have happened <laughs> far, far back? Yeah, yes. And if Cremo is onto something about human beings being millions of millions, who knows, maybe we've been here forever, then... You know, I'm, I'm keeping like a little, I'm not keeping the door open, but I'm keeping a window right. slightly open well, for that. What, what do you say well, to this? Think about Venus. It's rotating backwards from the Earth. And how do you explain that? And Uranus, isn't that upside down or something? Well, Uranus, the axis is pointing towards the sun. Right. So, I mean, its axis is basically perpendicular to its orbital plane. Right. Earth's is tilted 23 and a half degrees to its orbital plane. Now, did was that the original tilt of the Earth's axis? I don't know, and I would guess maybe not. But there's no, it's very difficult within the laws of physics to explain how Venus is spinning backwards unless you flip the whole damn planet upside right, down. Right, right, right. You know, right, um, right. and so again, what happened in the early days of the solar system? It's hard to say. You know, there's the, the theory of the this great bombardment episode that must have happened in the inner solar system because look the 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 maria yeah the, the exploded planet hypothesis right it could be that it could be that yes i mean it could be that the exploded planet hypothesis it could be what um caused the great maria on the near side of the moon a, a tremendous bombardment episode um right again maybe something and this, of course, is purely speculative. Of course, you of know, course. Some, something We're having fun. passing through. Yeah, something passing through the solar system. Um, and you know what we now know about some of these objects, the the bigger ones, they're oftentimes not isolated. They have a whole entourage of debris that's moving along with them. So you might have a huge object. Let's let's hypothesize a huge object passing, even like maybe a a a, a, a dwarf star passing in the vicinity of the solar system. So something that could have finished off the dinosaurs, for example? Something. Well, yeah. Now, okay, so there's evidence that at the KT boundary, there was a series of multiple impacts. Um, 
Indian scientists have discovered what they think is a big impact crater on the floor of the Indian Ocean that they call Shiva. The right. the the Chicxulub impact structure at the on the Yucatan under the Yucatan Peninsula is pretty much proven to be impact now, and that was a huge impact. And what about the fact that Antarctica had green stuff going on once upon a time? Yeah. It, it shows that something must have happened. I don't know if it's a tilt or if the landmass, but but the poles are, have probably not been the same forever. Correct. Now, mainstream science accepts the fact that the the continents are moving around with respect to the poles, and of course, the the, the standard explanation for um, a temperate Antarctica would be that at one point Antarctica was closer to the equator and slowly drifted to its present position. Now. That's the standard mom. Or could it also mean that the entire planet was so warm right. that Antarctica right. still at the South Pole but had a temperate climate? Mm. I don't know the answer to that question, Al. But if we if we do this again, I'll try to have okay. all of these answers. Um, <laughs> well, I, I don't know if we're going to revisit, but a yes/no question would be: Would human beings survive a pole shift, either if it's just a landmass or if it's the entire planet? Oh, I think so. I, I, I think oh, that. Okay. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, it, it all depends upon the rate of the pole shift. Um, but wouldn't it be like hurricanes? Like in, I've read about uh, how it would uh, be to experience it. It seems insane to survive something like that. Well, I think that all of the phenomena that would be now associated with um, a pole shift can also be explained by means of hypervelocity impacts. Hypercanes that are a thousand miles in diameter with wind speeds up to 600 exactly. miles an hour yes. are, are, are plausible. Again, you've got to ultimately have some kind of an energy dumped into the system. And I come down to e either impacts or the sun yeah. or a combination of both. Yeah. I have, like Graham Hancock, I've migrated away from pole shift theories mm. with, with the caveat that I just explained is that I think it's very plausible that you had a period of uh, accelerated plate tectonics in the aftermath mm. of this inconceivably huge redistribution of surface mass. And at the survival end, we have to look to the dozens of caves, cave systems around the world. Yeah. Well, deep. there are evidence. I, I, I'm not so up on the, the recent studies in Europe, but in North America, there was the Clovis culture that was quite prolific that rapidly and suddenly disappeared at the Younger Dryas boundary 12,900 years ago. That's right. You discussed it on Joe Rogan show, didn't you? Yeah, I think I did. I seem to recall. Right. Yeah. Mm. Now, bear this in mind, over a very short period of time of a couple of thousand years, half of all of the great megafaunal species on Earth did not survive. Right. Now, megafaunal species is anything greater than about 44 kilograms, which is about 100 pounds in body weight. So... If you, if you do a census of all of the megafaunal species alive on the planet during the Ice Age, it was almost double the number of species alive today mm. that are over 44 kilograms in body weight. Mm. So half of the megafaunal species on Earth were decimated to the point where they went extinct. Now, the other, the, the surviving species would not have come through an event like that unscathed. They were undoubtedly dramatically reduced in numbers, but the population uh, was viable enough that they were able to recover, uh, which 
can be a, a fairly rapid process, especially for the smaller species that have a rapid intergenerational turnover time. Mm-hmm. But for the large species, the 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 mammoths and the giant ground sloths and the woolly rhinos and the saber-toothed cats and the list goes on and on and on. They didn't make it. No, I mean we have we have mammoths with undigested grass in the belly. So something happened overnight. That's but, uh, something. Yes, uh, but uh, would it be easier to be a sea creature in such a scenario or worse? Uh, during the last ice age, yes, it would have been the the extinction uh, percentage of marine animals was much much lower huh. than for terrestrial animals okay. during this transition. So yeah. It would have been much easier for uh, a marine-based species to survive. Absolutely. Okay. Good for the whales out there and the dolphins. Maybe they will take over after the next (laughs) cataclysm. (laughs) But uh, let's now give a shout out to your stuff. So you mentioned frequently a podcast, but uh, digging up your stuff, it seems to me that you're doing several podcasts. Clear this up. Well, I'm just doing one. Cosmographia. Is the, now now I'm I frequently will do podcast interviews with other podcasters like I'm doing with you, but my own podcast is called Cosmographia with a K, uh-huh. and the simplest thing is just go to randallcarlson.com. I you know tried to make it easy just by using my name. Go to randallcarlson.com. Mm-hmm. You'll find all of the links there of anything and everything that I'm doing, um, but primarily the podcast. My own podcast is Cosmographia, and I get into, you know, it's based upon the term cosmography, Mm. which was, you know, during the Renaissance times, this was the attempt to understand all of the physical and, and energetic and spiritual parameters of the world. So it encompassed geology, astronomy, cartography, uh, geography, those kinds of things. Um, so those are kind of where we focus, but I also, I, so I get very, like I've been saying, I did 10 hours just on dissecting Plato's Atlantis. I did even more than that, looking at the Younger Dryas and working through the research on the Younger Dryas. My point there is that, you know, my the podcast that I'm doing, it's not really intended for the short attention span crowd. No, it's perfect for my audience because we, okay, like this show today with you is one of our, is on the shorter side of what we do. We do in-depth, long form, yeah. usually conversational. So they will love this stuff, man. Well, I'm glad. Uh, can you find it everywhere at, at any podcast platform or are you limited to certain? Uh, it's, there's a lot of it's on YouTube, but it, we're transferring it from YouTube over to a new internet platform that I'm a part of called HowTube. Oh wow! Which is going to be much more free speech oriented. It will be it will be curated. It's in the process right now of being launched, and Mike Robertson. Oh my God! I have to emigrate there too. I didn't know you were involved. This this is a whole show in itself. This is great, man. Yeah, yeah. So it's called the How To Project, and just people can go to howtube.com and they'll find all about it. I'm the flagship content creator, and we're 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 recruiting some of the cream of uh, content creators around the planet that are doing stuff of relevance and great interest, just like we're doing here. Mm. The goal is initially 12 content creators, and then within like a year or two to try to have 100 flagship content creators under the 
uh, how to umbrella. Okay, so it's not going to be open for all. It's going to be like a quality secured thing. Yes, I see. Yes, I see. it's going to be it's going to be curated. Well, then I'm going to apply. <laughs> I think you should, and and yeah, and I can definitely put you in touch with the the people you want to talk to. But just start by going to HowTube dot com yeah and and my podcasts are being hosted there at present so mm. okay so so it's youtube and there okay so i thought first it was like in the traditional podcast platforms like itunes spotify all we that are stuff. in the process well we have a um a social media manager that's putting stuff out there but what you're going to be finding we're in the process right now of offloading from YouTube onto HowTube. Okay. And in the near future, what you'll find on YouTube is basically trailers. Right. And that with links over to the new platform. Can they listen directly from your website too? Or? Yes. Just go to randallcarlson.com. Okay. And you'll find it. It's all right there pretty much. Very, very clear. Um, shouldn't be any problem. Yeah. You may want to tip off they probably know it already but your your website developers to look into library because they have a system where you just they clone everything on your channel on youtube you don't have to do anything uh-huh. and then uh, bam it's up on odyssey okay uh, which is probably going to be the new youtube unless the american government manages to take them down because the american government is in the process of court cases against them because they're terrified because they see that this is the one that can replace youtube but library is the system odyssey uses so everything is just copied and that would be easy for people who want to go over to howtube yes right instead of having to re-upload everything um, right right so that's that but uh, you also have uh, some kind of school i guess we could well, call it no well let me put it this way it's in the formative stages in fact in an hour and 45 minutes i'm uh going to be doing another conference with some folks um i've been developing these ideas for several decades about how you would take this information and organize it in such a way that it could actually become a curriculum where somebody could go and there would be, you know, it would also, it would be re, uh, it would combine rigorous scientific research with, you know, some of the more speculative kind of stuff that we get into and looking at, um, uh, you know, alternate history and all of those kind of things. You know, for years I've taught sacred geometry uh, and the, the the methodology of the ancient builders and their design parameters and so on. So what I've done is I've come up with a concept for, I'll call it a school in, in the original sense of a, a university, mm. which is kind of a play on words of city of the universe. Mm. And the idea here is that, you know, we find universally applied in many manifestations, the attempt to recreate the heavens on earth through the layout of the temple of the of the urban complex of the the sacred enclosure etc etc so we look at stonehenge and we find a model of the of the cosmos we look at giza plateau a model of the cosmos we look at the monumental earthwork of eastern north america and we find representations of the cosmos i think there's a very practical reason for that and that would be the subject for another discussion um, that I would love to get into with you, Al. But the idea is I've used my architectural skills to design the preliminary template 
for a 21st century version of the ancient universal archetypal temple-based urban complex slash school. So it would be in the, in, in, I would think of in the Platonic and Pythagorean lineage for Sir. And I've been now starting to put this idea out there and it's, it, it's, um, uh, evolved to the point now where there's a group of people raising money and we're actively looking for properties that could be developed using the ancient principles, but again, adapted to a 21st century, um, environment. Right. And, and the website, uh, and the project is called Sacred Geometry International, right? No, no, no. Let me, let me say this. Sacred Geometry International was a site that I worked with uh, a web developer 10 to 12 years ago. Um, but it turned out that for many reasons, and I'm going into this somewhat publicly now, the disclosure, mm-hmm. um, but that whole episode completely unraveled because of mismanagement and the hijack the hijacking of the website um, by the webmaster who turned it into his own soapbox for the promotion of half-baked conspiracy theories like QAnon and the the confiscation of the content that i provided it's totally presenting itself as if it's your page ask randall everything it's a fraud Oh my God, let man! Me, you let have me, to let me state for the record: it's a fraud. He quit uh, when we entered into that agreement. We agreed on a simple fifty-fifty split between any revenue generated from the sales of my content. The last revenue that I got was over was about three years ago. So he's been continuing to sell my stuff. He's had two legal cease and desist orders to stop selling my stuff. And he continues to do it. He continues to let people believe that when they purchase from that site, that, that I'm receiving remuneration, I am not. So this always happens to good guys. I mean, you're not alone. Look at, for example, Leonard Cohen. It's typical for people who are focused, wrapped up in their work, in their idealism. And then some handler comes in, right? A manager who's going to take them. And then they con you. Yeah. Typical. But it's so tragical. And, and the word people have to know. I've, I've been thinking all this time, this is your page. I've been reading it i've been well looking at it so i thought this was it but i created good thing you're clearing it i i created the majority of the content on there is is mine yeah but yeah yeah i had to walk away because the situation got so toxic and i understand personal attacks on me on my colleagues um and the fact that yeah the fact that i received no revenue from the site we in the cease and desist orders we requested access to the sales data of the material i provided 11 requests have been ignored uh he refuses to provide me access to the mailing list which is the consequence of over 50 podcasts promoting the site so it's really turned into a toxic very disappointing situation but yeah, I want people to know. So he's sell, he's selling your classes. He's selling yes. your DVDs. Yes, he's amazing. Yes, folks, uh, if you are frequenting that, uh, leave it. And that would that'd be Go to Randall's new. Uh, do you have a new one up already? Or? It's coming. We're, we've got yeah. There's there are things in the pipeline right now that, for example, the classes that he's selling is a ten year old unfinished beta version of my sacred geometry class. Right. And he's been told not, he's been told 
in in a legal desistant letter to stop selling it. He keeps it up there. People, you know, are still selling, buying it. Although I think that this, that people are finding out that I'm no longer part of that website and that I'm not receiving any revenue and all of the money is going to this guy. And, and ask Randall, is, even that's a ghostwriter, obviously, then. so Well, if, if there's anything that's been responded there within the last three years, yeah, then that's fraud. It's not me. But let me ask you this. You, you're familiar with the book, uh, A Beginner's Guide to Constructing the Universe, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, Michael uh, um, yeah. Schneider. So, um, Schneider, Schneider, right. Because when I'm judging your geometry stuff from this site, Sacred Geometry International, it's a, a huge focus on the phenomenons, the outer stuff. But the inner stuff, if you put it like that, the esoteric aspect, like understanding the, should we say, the soul of the geometry, mm -hmm. not just the practical applications, but the meaning of it. Um, is is that a focus in your school too? Well, it's clearly a part of it, yes. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, even in the Platonic sense, you know, in Timaeus, Plato gets into the cosmological and and spiritual significance, for example, of the five solid, the, the regular polyhedra, that right. have, because of his writings on them have come to be called the Platonic solids. Yeah. So absolutely. In fact, one of the things is I, you know, list the criteria of, of the people that I would like to invite to be involved. I, I list right at the top a spiritual orientation to life mm. because, you know, as a Freemason, one of the things that I had to affirm was that I believed that there was a higher creative intelligence, a divine intelligence, a creative power, however you want to envision it yep. uh, within Freemasonry, it's, it's anthropomorphized as the great architect of the universe who utilizes geometry to create the worlds, to create the manifested universe. In my, in my classes and workshops that I did on geometry, sacred geometry, my emphasis was on the practical because I was trying to reach out to, and in a lot of the people that took my classes and workshops, I had a lot of architects, designers, mm. people doing crafts. You know, I had stained glass window makers. I had quilters. I had furniture makers. I had artists. Right. So there was that kind of emphasis, how to use it. But you know, I, I used to say at the beginning, well, there's two parts of this, the why and the how. The why, we get into why is this important? What is the connections between geometric form in the outer world and what's going on in consciousness? Mm -hmm. What's going on in the inner world of spirit and so on? So, mm -hmm. yeah, I absolutely get into that. I wouldn't say that that's the primary emphasis because I feel that when people take these methods and they apply them and to begin to to use them and begin to see how these principles are actually embodied in themselves and mm. in the world around them, mm. they're going to gain a deeper appreciation of the, the ultimate. That's right. Yeah. You don't have to read yourself to the answers when you're starting to unravel these threads, these patterns around us, it will trigger illumination. So I'm all with you on, on that approach. That's brilliant, man. Right. But you know what? We are going to go into that next time we talk. Okay, so good. I think we can call it a day now. Well, let's see here. Yeah, it's 621 Eastern Standard Time. <laughs> um, it's been three hours. Yeah, three hours. God time place. Let's see. We started at about 330 and it's okay. 
about two hours and 45 minutes, maybe something like that. But yeah, but that's that's what my guests experience. They come here thinking they will be here for one and a half hour. And then after three hours, <laughs> they say the same as you. Oh, my God, time has flown. Uh, and I still feel we have just poked to the surface of the subject matter. So, you know, Oh, absolutely. We have. <laughs> yeah, we, we have. But now they know they can go to uh, your nine hours to go deeper. So that's good. Right. Well, I have actually what have we got, 75 episodes and each of one of them is about two hours. We're looking at about 150 hours of stuff. But do you, do you interview folks or is it just monologues? It's, um, well, it's myself, my colleague, Brad Young, and a couple of guys who live in Texas who helped me set up the podcast. So it's kind of a conversation between, I lead the conversation. Right. I pick the subject matter. It's it's uh, visual as well as audio. You can download it either way, but I always rely a lot on visuals. I have maps and photos and yeah. video clips and charts and graphics, so I use all of that. Okay. But so now we managed to plug in everything you're involved in then, right? Yeah, it, yeah. Well, I'm I'm doing another tour at the end of May, and then I'm going to be part of a conference in October. But RandallCarlson.com will basically is the is the gateway into anything else that's going on. Okay. And anything that's authorized can be accessed through there. Anything mm. through sacred, you know, because it, sacred geometry has not been updated. International has not been updated with any of my material now in over three years. So anything that's up there now, I, it's still valid, good stuff. But everything that's there that I created is going to be relocated to my new website. And that's in the process right now. Right. And, you know, I hate to do this. I've never sued anybody in my life, but I'm probably going to have to take on some significant legal, you know, go the legal route yeah. and, and get this thing stopped because uh, it can't go on like it is um, no. with people believing that that's. Plus, the association with my reputation, my reputation has, has suffered because people have of course. seen some of the stuff that yeah. he's posting and thinking it's me. Yeah. You know? No, I mean, I mean, it's better to sue him than to beat him up or to do black magic, right? So <laughs> go yeah. for it, man. You got to do what you got to do. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll go the legal route. But already we're seeing the signs that, that the patronage is falling off. Right. Because I think people are finding finding out karma will also take care of him for sure but um, no good luck with not just your own project but also the brand tube uh, no i mean the how how to how tube really love how to yeah. yeah. really love love yeah. uh, the idea i, I really hope well, check it out al and after you've checked it out if you have any questions feel free to reach back out to me and and i can put you in touch with the ceo um he would probably be really thrilled to talk to you and about what you do you know what? I'll invite uh, some uh, him or some kind of market person on at a later point when it when there's something to show for, and we can give attention to the whole phenomenon. Excellent. Have a show on it. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Because again, yeah, it's going to be very much about free speech. Yeah. And place a forum for dissenting views, for controversy. Like I said, it'll be curated. So you know, the idea is to to keep it from just degenerating into a bunch of trash talk and name calling. Mm. The idea, though, is a free flow of ideas and information. Right. So, so uh, I'm proud to be part of it. Yeah, yeah, it sounds brilliant, man. So we wish you luck with that. And I have to thank you also for stretching your time. I guess you got engaged. <laughs> so, 
next time we're gonna uh, limit ourselves to uh, the more spiritual aspects of of uh, these things. Okay, good. Mm. So you ever get over to this side of the of the ocean? Yes, uh, act, uh, before Corona, uh, at least. Uh, haven't been there since that hit. Uh, yeah. Well, of course, yeah. Well, if you ever get over this way, you know, give me a shout. I don't know what where you would be, but absolutely, man. But you live in Georgia, right? Yeah, I live in in just outside of Atlanta, Georgia, for now. But like I said, once this, you know, we're actively searching for land. Uh, we're looking in North Georgia mountains, Appalachian mountains, Eastern Tennessee. Right. Some some guys are looking in Arizona near the Sedona area. A couple other people are looking at real Speaking of that, if I go uh, to America in the future, I may actually be popping up close to where you are. So I'll definitely come over and have a coffee with you if that happens. <laughs> well, you know, I last year, I my company built a restaurant and part of my payment is I'm part owner of the restaurant. Oh, nice. We were a little worried building it during the pandemic. Right. That, God, you know, is it going to... But it's turned out to be wildly successful. Yeah, I mean, if you can make a restaurant now after they killed, they, they have killed whole lines of industries. Yes. And the huge multinational corporations are gobbling up everything. So uh, going into the restaurant business now mm -hmm. is brilliant because you, 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 you're going to have you. Where is all the, all the customers going to go, right? So good yeah. on you, man. The big problem is, 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 is the staff, but the owner is a, the, the the prime <laughs> owner is a really great guy. He's actually an Irish immigrant, and um, they have really good. They they treat their employees well, and word has gotten around, and so it's actually become. Uh, I think once word started getting out, hey, this is a pretty good, fun place to work, um, and it's got perks. So yeah. that kind of has solved the the employee problem as far as the staff, except in the kitchen. So they trying to find some trained cooks, yeah. but they're working on that as well. All I do is I built the place and now I just go there. I eat there like three times a week. I've been in the restaurant business. Kitchen often has uh, bad vibes, but you know, if you can create a place like that with, with good vibes, mm -hmm. it will automatically transfer to uh, the customers. Yeah, uh, It's an extra, I mean, good food, yes. Uh, great architecture, as you, of course, know, also <laughs> influences the atmosphere. Yeah. But but good vibes between the team, so important to, I think it even translates to the food, actually. Oh, yeah, absolutely it does. Mm. Yeah, there's, yeah, it, having a toxic workplace is not conducive to a successful restaurant, I don't think. Exactly. Yeah. With one exception, Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen, okay, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Randall, I'll let you go. I know you have other stuff coming up. It's so uh, great to talk with you. So that's it, Randall. Okay. Yeah. So again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome, Al. I've enjoyed every minute of Perfect. it. Because I think this has been a very interesting conversation. And I think it would be, you know, I'm definitely going to be recommending uh, for people to listen to it. Cool. That's a synergy effect. Love it. Yes. Right. Okay. God bless you, brother. So see you later then. Okay, okay Al. Yep. It's, it's been great. Yep. So long, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Now, before parting, I'll share with you a little anecdote. But even before that, let me remind you that as of today, when we are not at the HowTube yet, and we're also considering going over to Rumble, um, as well as Minds, and maybe even BitChute, although I am annoyed with the latter. 
But as of today, you can find us, of course, at YouTube, but also at ODC, which I really recommend you check out there, affiliated with library. And everyone with a YouTube channel will be able to get all their stuff converted to library without having to re-upload it and then get it exposed on ODC. And like I mentioned in this show, the American government is trying to destroy ODC, which is so important that we then support them. Um, and in the same uh, process, they're also trying to crush crypto. So this is a, a war at multiple fronts. Having said that, you can also find us at all the podcast platforms. Yes, we use Podbean as host, but it doesn't matter. You can use the one you're usually used to. Just search for us where you get your podcasts. And remember to sub there and anywhere else you find us. Subscribing is the poor man's donation. And it actually is incredibly important in order to spread our shows and also for us to be able to monetize them. And, of course, getting important guests who otherwise may not give us the time of day because a sought-after person doesn't have the time to be interviewed everywhere and anywhere and has to choose how to get the message out to most people. So subbing will ensure that we get your favorite guests on and people who are worthy of conversing with. And remember, even if it's a person you've heard at many other places, they haven't gotten the forum treatment yet. (laughs) Now, as some of you may know, I picked up from other shows. And by the way, speaking of other shows, if you enjoyed this today, remember we have many, many other shows in this series, and it's not going to be our last one either. We call the series Evidence for Antediluvian Civilizations. So if you go to that playlist, you'll you'll find uh, other worthy approaches to the same topic as we believe it has to be enlightened from multiple angles, not just one discipline or type of research or for that matter, just one type of theory. Now, as I was saying, um, you may have picked up elsewhere that I'm into collecting uh, rare and obscure documents, especially from old esoteric orders and mystery schools. And I have one that 100 years ago claimed the following, that a planet exploded between Mars and Jupiter, which of course, as mentioned today, has been elevated into scientific scrutiny by Dr. Tom van Flandern, and that accounts for the extreme uh, crater impact at one side of Mars, who of course got hit the hardest, and even our moon. Now, when that happened, at that point, Earth was not tilted. This was the golden age, and I suspect may have been around when the dinosaurs roamed the Earth, because Earth had a very different climate, much more stable, thicker, with huge creatures. And after that happened, the tilt, it caused the tilt of the Earth. And indeed, Carlson did point out today that it needs a huge energy source to to happen. Although, of course, there's no way to know if that was the cause. But interestingly, they also claim that there were humans living on both Mars and this exploded planet. Let's call it Ceres because that's the largest chunk of it today. And that some of them managed to escape to Earth, which became a sort of an arc And I think we also can infer from this that the 
people on earth than there was also people on earth that there are three different roots because every of course every human being on earth today is the same species but they may have had three different and who knows if they were related maybe it was the same civilization colonizing all three planets but Nevertheless, three different kinds of genetic injections into the human race could explain the three main kinds of races of men that are roaming Earth today. So I'm not saying I believe this, but it is interesting that the more we uncover, the more scientific evidence that has been uncovered since this private publication has not debunked it, just increased uh, the substantiation for it, to put it like that. Now, uh, I, I noticed even the members back in the day didn't take this literal. It seemed, oh, it's symbolic, blah, blah, blah. But how could they know? They didn't know enough science as we do today about circumstances that could make such a scenario plausible, although, of course, it's probably not a pure source. It may be degenerated or misinterpreted or whatever. But I find it highly, highly interesting. And, of course, this huge water planet would also be a source of extra water flushing down to Earth. And now, if you've ever seen uh, David Cerida's evidence, the case for NASA UFOs, a pretty well-presented uh, uh, account for the Tether incident and some other related incidents that were recorded at NASA TV back in the day. Now, he, he makes a very good theoretical case for the science of anti-gravity. But that's not the point. In that show, he shares with us correspondence with uh, one of the NASA tops and amazingly they admit that yeah earth is bombarded with water droplets now uh, where does that come from and if that happens today when there's no objective source for it if this is like a general phenomenon happening what w indeed would be the case when a huge water planet exploded so close to us but like Randall said, we don't need it to explain the additional water, but it would indeed add insult to injury. Now, don't crucify me on these details. I'm just relating to you uh, an exciting little story. Hope you enjoyed the show today. Thanks for tuning in and staying with us in these sensory times. I've been your host, Al. Sincerely signing off. Be seeing you. Who is number one?